flow coming from the rack store. Bet this back in the Mac in the back flow. Let's go, chillin' with raccoons by the back door. Take calls so you can stake more. All I wanna do is making door right. But I found this crew and doing alright. We wreck will bitch, ready to fight. So many raccoons ready for the boss life. I might fly high like a kite, right? But always ready for a shite for the right prize. Raccoon supply has the right price. Giving you respect if it's likewise. So I'm buying all the mean guys with the clean heart. Read between lies, laser bean through lean eyes. Larry or with clean lies, trash mouth, mean smile, be wise. NFT wise, fuck with these guys. It's the rack rap from the back lab. 100 NFTs in my backpack. Crazy rack rap from the stash app. Rack will take a lead in this haystack. It's the Good rack morning, Rack FM. Today is Tuesday, the 23rd of May, 2023, and this is your favorite, the best, the motherfucking greatest show ever, anywhere, ever. We are the best. We are Rack FM. RackFM.org. Finn here, gonna hand it over to your captains this evening. Bruce Main, Robo, B Bands for a sec. This is. The Neck Syndicate. Have you got any words, Bruce, to, for the gentleman and everything? I would just like to say welcome to this special first, maybe the last, we'll never know, maybe we will in the future, episode of The Neck Syndicate, joined by the surprise guest, Stephen, the Cardano tokenomic consultant genius dude. This is the financial breakdown and more reports brought to you by Rag FM. Nice one, bro. That's you. probably going to be Finn's beginning, isn't it? Right, uh, Mike. I mean, it, it, I heard that. all of. <laughs> oh, dude, we get better. Wait, wait until we get really going. I mean, I heard uh, Stephen say like his dissatisfaction in certain day five products and stuff like that. Uh, Mike. Like, hypothetically, you know, no names or whatever. We don't have to go there. We all know the situation. I mean, what happened with this kind of situation last week with founders getting tokens, being able to harvest them, farm them? Is this unethical behavior or something we should accept? Or is it a problem with the tokenomics at heart? What's up, guys? Um, Yeah, quick introduction. Stephen, I come from a similar space with you. Um, I was a financial consultant, still am a financial consultant. Um... I come from the securities industry where the stuff is literally you're behind bars for plus 20 years. And if you do any of this insider trading stuff and get caught by the Securities Exchange Commission or FINRA, um, you're you're in jail. So um, I don't know why it became acceptable in DeFi. I think I'm starting to get to a point and I was almost at a breaking point last week where I was like, fuck all this. I'm done in this space this is not what i got into this space for um it was more for you know the the access and the open access to financial markets for most people that don't understand how hard it is to access u.s equity markets to access the world market it's actually very hard for somebody i mean it's it's easy to trade u.s stocks but for the average person to be able to you know open up a brokerage account or open up you know a forex account it's not as easy um as it is to open up, you know, like a, a MetaMask or to, to get a Coinbase account or, or or like a decentralized finance wallet. And that's kind of where, 
you know, I started to align with it is like, okay, now you have open access to financial markets, which isn't accessible by everyone, especially if they don't live in the US. So um, back to the point of what founders are doing. Yeah, it's it's totally unethical um, from the point of where, you know, tokenomics wise, where Eric could probably speak a lot more like I, I, I address this a lot and I got a lot of shit for it where, you know, to- a lot of these tokenomics are predatory in the sense of that inflation is super high in the beginning and that allows you know user allows founders to either stake tokens or incentivize lp um with lps i mean i've been a big proponent of saying lps lose money in traditional market making world you know market makers don't really take that take on that much risk because they're really (laughs) finding managers and buyers and it's more of an order book flow um and uh for some reason these amms um, when Eric is saying what Eric was saying and why Astro Vault's a lot more different is that a lot of AMMs are incentivized with these inflationary DEX tokens that don't really have any value other than, you know, <laughs> I mean, farming and dumping, which we saw Jake and we saw, you know, the the Atmos team. We saw a lot of people do what these these farm tokens is, okay, you know, I'm gonna incentivize my LP. And it's 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 this is literally the strategy that a lot of DEX tokens a oh, lot sorry, of Mike. What about governance? Isn't that a valuable utility? No, governance is not valuable. (laughs) You don't see Fortune 500 companies have regular people that don't keep up with the day-to-day balance sheet, don't keep up with EBITDA. They don't keep up with any of the stuff of how the financials run in a company, make the financial decisions. That's why there's a board of directors. And that's why, you know, you look at Ford, you look at a lot of these companies. That's why they're, I mean, insurance companies are, I'd say insurance companies in the United States are the longest standing companies in the United States for a reason because they know how to manage risk. So I think having people decide what what the financials are is the dumbest shit that ever came out of crypto. I think everybody should have their niche and specialty on what they're good at. And I'll, I'll be no stranger to say I know nothing about – I mean, I wouldn't say I know nothing about the technology. I understand a lot of it. I don't know how to code. I don't know you know a lot of the technical terms, and I think a lot of it is fleecing. And they make it seem a lot more complicated than it really actually is to make them seem smart. So they don't, they have like an edge, but I think, you know, Eric and I talked about this is where a lot of the shit that they were saying was like, uh, mm, I'm pretty sure this is not that complicated as you make it seem. And it's kind of like a, a Ponzanomic flywheel where, you know, if you really had simple tokenomics, the more simple it is, the better. Um, I think we'd be, be, be off in a, a lot better place, but I definitely agree with the fact that, that what a lot of people are saying is that, um a lot the founders should be held accountable and i i think you're making you're making like people making excuses for jake making excuse for atmos making excuse for a lot of these founders well they have to you know they have to fund it themselves like there's a reason why vcs don't invest in these projects because they're probably shit and vcs don't think they can make money and and people yeah. hate vc people hate vcs so much it's like venture capitals are in here for two reasons one to make money and two to align with founders that align with their interests and if you're not, if you're not, if you're not one of the, if you're not in one of those categories, then, you know, you're not going to get money from venture capital. So let me, I, I so, understood. The- sorry, sorry, Steven. Sorry, Steven. Just a quick one. So this cutthroat, no BS attitude that Mike just expressed, Eric also got it. This is very realistic opportunist. It's my perspective. It's why Eric and Mike is going to be hopefully a household name in the Rag FM broadcasting station so steven mm-hmm. show us what you got no i'm kidding okay I, I understood that <laughs> i understood that from a few perspectives there's like a, there's a wide range of questions within that 
First, I want to just start by saying, yeah, absolutely, founders should be held accountable. Um, essentially, at the end of the day, we're building a business, right? A DeFi product should be a business like any other. And being a business like any other means that you should be following the laws that any other business needs to follow in order to operate. Um, I don't think I am unique in thinking or saying that. And that's why regulation overall for the space of God, this is a dangerous thing to say, uh, is in long run a good thing because it legitimizes the space and it means that we now have clear cut rules that we need to follow and we have structures of responsibility um, that need to be that need to be um, you know accepted. As an example, if you have an Australian financial services license, you need to have at least two responsible managers that work within your business. Right. And those two responsible managers are both there for the purpose of um, auditing and for the purpose of compliance. And that's essentially two people that have the education level to ensure that your business is meeting the regulatory requirements to hold an Australian financial services license. Um, when you're providing financial services, you, there needs to be some level of compliance officer, right? That's, that's the reality of why we've created this regulatory system that exists. And it's to protect people from actions from founders, exactly as you're describing, where they're able to create designs of just a pure inflationary token um, that they have the majority of at the beginning, which allows them to inflate their own supply and then dump down, or of course gives an undue advantage to those that enter the market early. Um, i.e. I arrive early, I buy in a lot, and next minute I'm able to dump down on the others that come in after me, hence, you know, Ponzi-like. Um, Yes, so that's one of the big, biggest problems with uh, the design of DEX tokens, right? I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you there. Now, when and another thing that I just want to point on, though, is you were talking about the, the trading of liquidity pools, right? And the trading of liquidity pools themselves, let's remove that, that concept of a founder. Um, the trading of liquidity pools themselves, people need to kind of adjust the way in which they're imagining how they're working as a, as a financial product. Um, <clears throat> As a financial product, liquidity pools are much more similar to interest rate swaps between two currencies than they are to trading a currency outright or than they are to market making, right? If you think of it as market making, you're instantly going to be uh, putting yourself in a back foot because you're thinking that I'm behaving as the buyer, as the seller and the buyer of a token, but the mathematics of it don't behave in the form of market making mathematics because market making works on an order book model, exactly as you said. Rather, if you think of it as an exchange of relative value between two tokens, right, or relative value between two currencies, um, and rather than look at it as me market making, I'm looking at it as me creating a hedging structure between two currencies by offsetting 50% of the risk with regaining the token that I'm losing, right, much like swapping a fixed and variable interest rate. Right? I swap my fixed interest for variable interest so that as I lose value in one, in one currency, as that value in one currency goes down, I'm making back more of that currency through the interest rate. Um, because I've got fixed over here and I've swapped it for variable over there. So that means the variable interest is changing. Um, now, since we've got, see, when you look at it within that structure, with the way that I would engage in DEXs, you, you don't engage with, like I don't normally engage with the liquidity pool with the DEXs token, right? I'm looking for thinking about my token structure within a portfolio. So let's say I've got a portfolio of Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, BNB. Within this portfolio, I know that I'm pretty happy with having BNB and Cardano together. Like I don't really mind if I've got a bit more BNB and a bit more Cardano. I know that I don't mind if I've got a bit more Ethereum and a bit more Bitcoin. 
right? What I need now is trust in a protocol that I'm supplying my, my liquidity to, right? But if I'm supplying Bitcoin and Ethereum and I'm trading off the relative value between Bitcoin and Ethereum while learning fees, right? Now I'm behaving like a currency exchange. So I'm earning fees by allowing others to currency exchange between me, right? I'm taking off relative value from the respective token, right? When Bitcoin is going up with respect to Ethereum, I'm earning more Ethereum. And when Bitcoin and when Ethereum is going up with respect to Bitcoin, I'm earning more Bitcoin, right? But because I don't mind holding Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? I'm probably going to be holding both in my portfolio anyway. I'm willing to accept that fluctuation in return for some kind of flat payout from the DEX, right? Now, the value of that token often is decreasing because they've designed their tokenomics poorly, right? But at the end of the day, because within my portfolio, I don't mind having more or less of either of those tokens and I'm earning a flat return, as long as I have faith in the protocol that's underpinning that, I don't mind holding it within that liquidity pool. Does that make sense? Yeah, I got a couple questions. Um, yeah, hey, go ahead, Eric. You take this one. Uh, so first off, excellent uh, coverage. Thank you. Um, one, why do you have a fixed supply of Wi-Fi? And then two, I, I get that there's like a profit sharing, but what happens when that max supply runs out and how do you retain value of the Wi-Fi token? Well, we don't really have that max supply running out. Um, it's a uh, function, the farming function is asymptotic. It never actually reaches zero. Similar to Bitcoin mining in that respect, right? Um, as for the supply, we've, we've designed our farm to basically be doled out very slowly over 30 plus years, right? So the entire idea of the farming in BiFi is that it's a slow, sustained process that takes place over a long period of time. Now, as an example, why, our first why have a max supply, supply as a whole? Why, why do you support max supplies? What is the purpose? Why do I support max supplies? This is this is interesting, right? This is this has got more to do with the Cardano ecosystem itself. Within the Cardano ecosystem, the concept of burning tokens is looked upon very poorly. So it's very hard to talk communities through to burning tokens as not an accepted mechanism within the Cardano space. So since understanding that within the within the blockchain that I'm working, that that's not a done, that's not a commonly applied mechanism. As we don't apply a burning mechanism, the alternative is to have a max supply that we're approaching, but we can never reach so that we're able to control the levers as we don't have the lever to pull out supply. Okay. Um, carry on. Like how do you, how much revenue is Wi-Fi making? How, how do you justify token, um, token supply? So, sorry. How much revenue is Vipi making? I wish we were making more. Right. Well, in, sure. in general, like DEXs, DEXs <laughs> don't make money. I, I've been looking over your guys' white paper. Very well thought out. Love the diagrams and everything. Um, I'm, and I get that there is like a profit sharing type thing. So one, I'd love to understand why Vipi isn't a security and, like, and how you guys uh, plan on maintaining not being a security as um, as future regulation gets rolled out. And then two, I'm wondering like how, how much mm -hmm. how much profit there is, like how much revenue are you guys working with? Like what kind of fees, like is the long-term plan just to sub, like sustain itself on fee revenue? And if so, how does that uh, pay for the team? Uh, yeah, so the, we said really nice things about governance before, so I'll avoid, I'll avoid mentioning governance. <laughs> no, 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 please, um, please, please do talk about governance. We're just talking shit. It's Cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay, so with, with respect to the securities aspect, our token XVIFI is a security. We've, we've got, a, in Australia, we're not considered a security and we're an Australian business, right? In America, it's definitely not that simple. Um, 
our X Wi-Fi is the one that's considered a security, not Wi-Fi itself. We've got a mechanism that if we are told that we have to, we can change our mechanism to supplying income to the liquidity itself so that it's not adjusting any price of Wi-Fi rather than being supplied to the X Wi-Fi token. Uh, so that would annul the security, uh, the securities um, classification of the X Wi-Fi token. Uh, Wi-Fi itself isn't classified as a security, and that is something that we are watching very closely with regulation to see how that develops in Australia to ensure that we adjust accordingly as soon as the regulation develops. Okay, cool, cool. Now, what was the next question? Um, what was the next question there? Yeah, how much how much revenue are you guys working with? Do you have means of adapting, adjusting, getting more revenue over time? Is it just relying on listing fees yeah. and, and trade fees? So the... It, no, no, no. We, it's actually not even relying on um, listing fees. We don't have a listing fee. You just charge. You're just. Uh, it's just the transaction cost to list. Um, it's on trade volume. It's also on NFT royalties. Uh, we've got one of the more, We've got a popular NFT project on Cardano. Um, it's also based on our lottery, uh, and it's based on the upcoming auto harvester, and it's also uh, based on the. Uh, okay, so in Cardano, there is a transaction fee that gets sent when you perform a transaction. It's called concurrence. It costs about 1.5 ADA when you send a Cardano native token. Um, and we're also taking a third of that to go through to the bar. So it it's relies on a volume of multiple mechanisms, right? So what's the volume of trades themselves that we're getting? Like, it doesn't really matter the volume within the trade, it's the number of trades. It also matters the volume. That's another one that impacts the total amount that's going through. Uh, it also has a volume of our NFTs. Um, you know, it's it's a really wide, it's going to be a really wide ecosystem when it's completely built. The current income that we're working with right now, uh, since we've launched, like we launched our decks a week ago, right? So in the last week, we're probably talking 3,000 or so Cardano that's gone through to the bar. Uh, first off, congratulations on the launch. And, and secondly, like, sorry to grill you. Like, I, I I know you know your shit, so I'm genuinely just trying to understand more of this. I, I've come at things from a... Very no, 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 please, throw me away. These are the questions I want. Yeah. <laughs> These are the questions I want, mate. Uh, I'm here to think. Yeah, just just <laughs> crunchy numbers. My, my background's in economic philosophy. Got into tokenomics from the, from the casino side, actually. Um, and one of the issues I'm running into looking at things from first principles perspective is that a lot of businesses that we're just expecting are going to work just don't have the potential for revenue that are required to sustain the businesses. And um, one of one of those I've struggled with is DEXs. So I'm, I'm building Astro Vault as mine. And basically, we're tapping into the inflationary rewards of the layer ones through the liquidity that's hosted as a means to try to subsidize because trade fees aren't enough um, to, to sustain LPs and whatnot. So I, I like your exact flywheel. And exactly what you're describing there is what we're doing with our auto harvester, right? So it's to be able to access the liquidity of the other DEXs that are around the ecosystem to then be able to support that back in our own ecosystem. So you, you can access, for example, the MinSwap LP through the Wi-Fi platform. Okay. So That's another DEX on Cardano. So, so it's like an aggregator? Yeah, it's an aggregator. Okay, cool. Sorry, yes. It's called differently on different... Different blockchains have different names for the same thing. And that always confuses me when I've been so long in Cardano, so forgive me. <laughs> we call it an auto harvester. So yeah, liquidity aggregator. So Chris, Chris has a lot of Chris had a lot of questions. I'm just reading them under the uh, the um, the Rack FM spaces, uh, and uh, it'd be okay. Can it be okay if I just answer those real quick? 
Yeah, of course. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, so uh, you say that VC, VCs aren't necessarily a good thing. They may they may not invest, and it's a good project, but doesn't mean they invest in the project's vision. They're in it to make money. What do you suggest VCs uh, replace dumping on you rather than Jake dumping on you? Uh, with VCs, there's a lot more regulation that goes into the VC space. In crypto, there's not really much um, you can do. Um, if they are a U.S.-based VC, they do have certain rules they have to follow by. I mean, venture capital and uh, and hedge funds are regulated by Reg D um, in the United States, which there's some sort of best interest that's baked into there. It's not super, uh, super, I'd say super rigorous. It's not like the securities industry. Um, they're not regulated by the SEC. So um, there isn't really nothing. There's nothing to really prevent other than investing schedules uh, with venture capital. And that's really worked out between the VC and the founders. Um, the thing about the VC stuff is a lot more transparent on kind of how much the VCs hold because they have to report it. So um, I, th- I think you bring up a valid point where a lot of VCs really aren't aligned um, with the project vision, are really in it to make money. But at least you know <laughs> that VCs are in it to make money. And I think if you don't realize that, you're kind of, I wouldn't say you're stupid, but you should you should tread carefully where, where VCs are, are are present. But then you know, a one sixty is a good one where I think Anderson Horowitz, um, I think they, uh, they do have a long-term vision on the space. Um, and I think uh, I can, I can, I could say Delph, uh, Delph, Delphi is, is, is in here for, for a longer, longer term time horizon. So it just depends on the VCs that are investing in the projects. If it's a VC you haven't heard of, I think it's just sometimes, you know, uh, blowing smoke up your ass and it's not, you know, somebody that would have credibility. If you're looking at some of these projects, I'd look at, more quality and uh, I'd say non non predatory VCs. I think Jump is one of them that you you kind of got to be careful with too. But I mean, Jump's invested in synthetics, and I'm a synthetics investor, and they've been they've been pretty helpful with with the success of synthetics. So I think I think from that that aspect uh, that um, I think VCs dumping on you is a little bit different than the founder because <laughs> the VCs are in it than making in it for making money. The founder is really in it to make the project and have it be uh you know successful and longevity and then you say who's more at fault jake or stargaze jake can't dump early if stargaze doesn't do shit about the distribution that doesn't mean jake's moral ethical or was a good decision but if you give anybody liquid tokens and say don't dump on you you're at fault i agree with on that at some point um i think it is important that you know founders are are important on who they give you know the distribution to um jake was a co-founder of stargaze he was no longer uh, affiliated with stargaze but there was no transparency of why he dumped or why, you know, of, you know, uh, why he left the Stargaze team. That's kind of Stargaze. I think that is part of Stargaze's fault. But then again, you know, if somebody leaves the team, you'd have to have proper vesting schedules as well. So I think it was a learning experience for Shane too. I think Shane had a lot of faith in Jake because Jake, uh, he's building Juno and I think there's some shit happened with the code and they ported the code to Juno. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff that's like kind of, I'd say gray area where, you know, it's not necessarily wrong in the sense of, you know, it's illegal, but moral and ethically, it's not, you know, I, I live by more of a moral compass than a regulation compass. I need, I think, you know, the clear, you know, the clear right and wrong in a situation. If you're walking away from $8 million and, you know, you, you have, you know, your community and all this, and you're kind of just like, I'd say you're more than fleecing and, and grooming your community. We could like to call it in the securities industry is where you're defrauding investors, where you're, at the sense of you're telling them not necessarily material and factual information that's not true, but you're kind of misleading them in the sense of, you know, you're, you're withholding information that you, that, you know, 
So just because you're not not telling the truth, you're if you know something like you know Jake was dumping these tokens and you know he was not affiliated with Stargaze, he was stealing the code, and you're still you know promoting Stargaze, you're promoting Juno. I would still count it the same as defrauding investors because you have access to information. You're not allowing the community to know and investors know. So I'd say from from that aspect, you know, Jake is wrong for that. Shane obviously is in the wrong too, but it's I'd say Shane is a lot less at fault because I think he had good faith in that Jake would cont- contribute to Stargaze and the success of Stargaze. So I'll let, I'll let Robo, Robo's got his hand up, so. No, well, actually, I'm going to segue into something that Stephen just said. However, I apologize for the noise again. Uh, I just want to find out if uh, if Eric or uh, Stephen's got any response to what you said about VCs before I just uh, ask Stephen about what he mentioned there. Eric, you got anything for Mike there? Uh, I mean, one of my major frustrations is that VCs are dumb. <laughs> just in general, like I've had some of the lowest quality conversations I've ever had in the crypto space with VCs who are just absolutely lost. And then seeing the kind of things that are on the portfolio and just trying to get them to understand things that are just so far over their head, it, it's infuriating. That's why, mo- that's why most VCs are focused in, the, in like private equity and, uh, and equities markets because that's where the smart ones are. Yeah. <laughs> the crypto ones are failed, failed equity and, and private equity VCs. We, we've noticed more. much <laughs> in Bitcoin. Yeah, we, we've noticed far more success when I just don't talk to them. <laughs> uh, and maybe I, uh, I, I'm kind of an adverse person and it, it could be come off a little rude, I guess, but I don't know. I can actually go into like what we're building and stuff with Astrovault and it just goes way the fuck over their head. And I, I get it. Don't invest in stuff you don't understand. But if, if what you understand is fucking monkey pictures, like good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it went over my, I read, I read five minutes in that white paper. I'm like, okay, I need to talk to Eric and he has to explain to me because I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Well, I understand, get that. I understand that feeling well, Eric. <laughs> get into um, Eric's white paper, Stephen. You got anything, any replies for Mike? Uh, no, like, I basically agree with most of the sentiments that you guys have surrounding VCs. So, like, I don't really have anything specifically to add. We we had a lot of VC interest back when we were starting, but I never accepted any VC funds um, because they all wanted control, and I was very certain yep. that they didn't have the understanding to have control. VCs, I think VCs in this space aren't in traditional like venture capital. And if you look at traditional venture capital in the US, it's more of a partnership where, you know, the VCs do want control, but they're kind of, it's almost like private equity. I mean, you have a private equity firm, they let you do your thing, they give you a little bit of advice, they say, hey, you know what, I think you should focus more on production, I think you should do this, you should do that, versus VCs like, here's a bunch of money, here's what you need to do with your tokenomics so we make money. Versus, okay, we're going to make money because we're betting on you. We're betting on the founders. We're, not, we're betting on the people that have the vision versus we're betting on how much money we can churn out of this project and make as much money as possible so we can move on to the next one. I think that's where I think Eric, Eric is like coming from is that they don't have the same mindset in traditional venture capital investing because anybody with you know a large sum of money can set, start a venture capital raise and say, hey, you know, in the crypto space, there's really no rules on this stuff. We can just throw money at a fire and raise money and hope to flip it in two seconds because there's no rules about vesting. There's no rules about, you know, 144A where, you know, in traditional, like traditional finance, if you're an insider, you only can sell off a certain amount of stock. Like they don't have those rules in the crypto space. And that's, I think that's why a lot of these VCs blow up is that a lot of them aren't really smart. They're stupid people. They're a bunch of people that were failed venture capitalists, failed hedge fund managers, failed financial advisors, consultants, you know, failed in the in the traditional industry because i think 
realistically, a lot of people are in the space because they don't, they don't, they, they failed in, in the real world because in the real world, there's consequence for your actions. You know, if I, if I'm a financial consultant and I'm, you know, uh, a fiduciary and I make, make a wrong recommendation, I could lose my job. Even if I don't make a wrong recommendation, you know, I, even if I make a right recommendation, the, the client thinks I'm wrong, I, I can still get in trouble. So I'm held to a very high standard. And I understand that versus in a space like this where, you know, I know I'm speaking out of it because I'm just a fucking pixel wixer, pixel wizard picture and nobody knows who I really am, but <laughs> I'm being counterintuitive to what I was actually talking about. But I mean, I, I would say I'm more, a lot more ethical than a lot of people in this space and I don't plan on launching a token. I don't plan on doing any of that stuff where, you know, Syndicate is going to be a for-profit business that launches products similar to kind of like a broker dealer is. We have a slew of products. Well, I will get into that later, but I think Going to what, what, what Eric and, and Steven are saying is that, you know, you talk to a lot of these guys, you're like scratching your head, like, man, they don't know that I know a lot about like finance and <laughs> shit. They must think I'm just some idiot guy that didn't, 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 uh, didn't know what he's doing, just kind of got lucky when, you know, Eric is probably one of the more intelligent guys that I've talked in the space and listening to Steven and, and his knowledge on, you know, how LPs are interest rate swaps where I think, you know, I'm coming from a uni uni, uni LP V3 short straddle where I kind of view them as short straddles. If you look at the Uniswap uh, V3 um, and, and concentrated liquidity and, uh, and range liquidity is where you think of it more as a short straddle. But I think I, I think we have a lot of smart people in the space that don't get a lot of credit. And then we're, they're the ones with a lot less followers because people don't really care about finance. Uh, they'd rather have somebody tell them what to do and make a lot of money and I think that never is in the advantage of the investor and it's always in the advantage of the founders because I think don't hold back, don't, don't hold back. Oh yeah, you're holding back tonight. I mean, I don't know what you're holding back. Jesus Christ. I mean you're setting fire to everybody, aren't you? <laughs> uh no. I, I, I don't give a shit, man. I really don't care. I, I told Eric or I told somebody this the other day, like if this doesn't work out in the crypto space, I'm fine, man. I have a regular job. I enjoy my job. I I get to serve people every day. I mean, I love doing it. I, I like to. I would like to come in this space and be a greater good and 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 make a profitable business, just like Stephen and Eric are trying to do, where we have this this somehow misconstrued idea that everybody's going to make it. That's not how the world works. Look at traditional investing. There's a winner and loser on every side of the trade. Whether the loser is the guy that sold the stock at a lower price and the stock went up the next day, or the guy that bought a stock that eventually filed for Chapter Eleven. Like we don't we don't know that. In the time being, where somebody sells a stock, let's say I bought, you know, a good example is like uh, I, I don't know if you ever heard of um, Enron. Uh, Enron was a was a company in the United States that got yeah, in trouble. Yeah, all, for, all yeah, about Enron. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so, so, if you bought, so if you bought Enron, you were the smartest investor ever before they were cooking the books. So, um, you know, and and you would say, oh well, man, I put everything into it, and I made a lot of money until you know the new information came out that they were cooking the books. So. I, th I think, you know, again, the person that bought the stock and it went up all the way, everyone's like, man, should have never sold Enron at, you know, 50 bucks. Now it's at 100. Well, the guy that sold that at 50 bucks felt like an idiot at the time. But when they filed for Chapter 11, he was the smartest guy ever. He's like, man, I made money on this thing yeah. when, it, when it went to zero. It, it, <laughs> sounds, like, sounds, like the Chinese, sounds like the Chinese housing market. Um, one, one, thing that I really want to, one thing that I really want to add to that, right, is the, like you were you're, – I am always apprehensive when I see a founder whose background is marketing or a founder whose background is, you know, YouTube influencer, right? That, that to me is an instant sign that this project's probably a piece of shit, 
right? Um, now, there are many, one of the big things that I found within the crypto space, and I think sometimes it's done maliciously, sometimes it's done from ignorance, because the people that we're dealing with that are building these crypto instruments are very technical developers, right? Their background is development. Their background isn't economics. So when they're building these incredibly technical systems, they don't necessarily apply an understanding of economics in the way that these systems are being designed, right? And I think it's a bit harsh to say that it's always done as a um as a purposeful way to mislead a community to take money from them i think a lot of the times it's it's done and exploits are there because they're not traders who are building this and they don't understand the way in which these systems truly function right like particularly when you're looking at stuff like balancer pools you know once you implement a balancer pool a balancer pool is highly complex there's no way that the devs that are building that understand the trading consequences of having 14 sets of balancer pools all of which have got shared tokens between them and the way in which you're able to manipulate lps particularly you know if you are a founder or hold a vast majority of three of those lps and you're able to move them between those balancer pools to be able to extract value without damaging values of certain tokens they don't want to damage for example Right. Um, I tried to explain that really simply. <laughs> so forgive me. <laughs> that probably made no, no sense. No, dude, you, no, you're, no, you're no. Spot. I get, I say, I get what you're saying. I say all yeah. the time, we need more game theory audits. People audit the code. Like, yeah, the code may do what you want it to do. And what you want it to do is dog shit. Like, you, you need to actually That's understand it. the first principles of what, of the, the consequences, the ramifications of what you're building. Also, uh, about the VC thing, to chime in a little bit. Um, all, all the projects like, oh, well, this one's good. It doesn't have VCs. All the projects have VCs. Whether it's if it's not in a pre-seed or a seed round, then it's OTC afterwards. All of your like, oh, well, this isn't a VC chain. This is a community chain. Even in the cosmos, they all have VC money. They all have VC. Bro, bro, bro. Don't don't use that word community. That's the biggest bullshit I've ever heard. Community. Come, wait a minute. Can we come back to that? I'll tell, I'll tell you what. Then. OK, wait a minute. I'm going to I'm going to do this little segue and it's only a mini one, guys. And, and you know, flatter us for a minute. Uh, Stephen. You were talking earlier, and I heard you mention the word lottery. The minute you mentioned the word lottery, I'm like, ah, okay. Well, what, what kind of lottery is that, right? Uh, are you guys employing your own form of, like, randomness, or are you accessing, like, someone else's randomness on chain, like uh, Link or whatever? Where are you getting your randomness from if you're doing a lottery? Well, we were super smart about it. We were the first people to be able to do this on the chain, on the Cardano blockchain. Um the way that we're doing it is we're essentially using the block hash itself to be our lottery numbers, right? So we can't predict uh, what the next block uh, hash uh, is going to so be. So you said, well, one second, Stephen. So you said you're the first, you, you, you corrected yourself and you said you're like the first on Cardano. So did you look yes. at like other methods on other blockchains before you implemented random? Because we've been doing randomness for a very, very long time based on the transaction hash as well and other things. <laughs> So, like, we when did, did you guys we implement it? We actually did look at how it was working, how it was taking place on other blockchains, the people that were using the blockchain natively to create that randomness. And then we were we were able to implement that because Cardano works fairly uniquely. So we had to, of course, adjust that to work for Cardano and implement that. So you guys are not using a third party for your randomness? No, 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 no. We're, no, we're using, yeah, we're using our own system to do that. But we're using, it's all publicly verifiable. It's all open source, is it? Uh, not the code itself, but all the block hashes that we're using for the randomness are. So we post those block hashes with the lottery. 
Right, okay. Do you, do you time it like with certain like prices of assets at certain specific times as well? No, we have, no we have no use for that complexity. I could actually see a use for that complexity though within the Cardano ecosystem if you guys are able to supply that. Uh, I'll tell you what, Stephen, I'll, I'll have to go and tag you. We did a randomness summit, uh, I think about two months ago now, Bruce, ne nearly two months ago, right? Yeah, we had, like, the, the, yeah, it was two months ago. It was the 20th of March. At API3, we had uh, NOIS, we had uh, Mall, who, because that's what we were into, Stephen, uh, our project, that we were a gambling project, well, a game and gamification gambling project, and we're in, sorry, the noise, the guy's locking up here, and we're into uh, randomness in a big way, right? And uh, we had a massive summit, and, and the stuff that API3 are doing is like really like high level, high, like way above like what Chainlink are doing. So when it comes to randomness, I'm always interested, but I'll, I'll have to send you the summit and we'll chat later about that. That might be a, a different show, yeah? Absolutely. Send it through. I'd love to have a look. Of course, bro. Uh, right, uh, Eric, let's get to this one, Bruce. Eric's been working. I mean, I don't even know where Eric's been. Has he been in the basement for like six months or something? So, Eric, give us a precursor as to what it's taken to be able to even get in the mindset of creating these tokenomics. How hard has it been? Uh, we know there's been delays with Archway. So is that one of the things is like the developing, like what we've seen of proof of stake and how bad it's been going in some areas? Like, are you guys just literally not making it up as you go along? But is it like your tokenomics has been based on the development of what we've seen of the previous fuck ups? With proof of stake? No, yes, not enough. I don't know. We take a lot of really good steps with Archway. It's not as many steps as I'd like to take, but again, I, I want to bring out cars and people want faster horses. Um, so it, designing tokenomics is easy. You just think about what you want to do and you itemize the, the fastest steps to get there, line incentives, make sure it's safe from attack in every different way, shape, or form, and then and then package it up in a nice little, uh, nice little package. Again, we just dropped the econ paper today. It is live on the website now. Um, where you could go over that with Archway. Uh, the biggest hiccups for me is um, waiting for everything to get developed, as well as then protocol changes. So I I'm not a developer when I have something in mind, like you go through the Astrovault white paper, the formulas that we use are not the initial ones I wanted. The initial ones I wanted included um, included fractionalized exponents, and they could not code decimals in the exponents uh, in, in Rust uh, for, for what I wanted to do. So I had to adapt to what will also work that can be done. For Archway, I, I had set up this really, really cool tokenomic model um, with uh, adjustable and adjustable max gas per block based on um, based on demand. So, so similar to the EIP fifteen fifty nine type stuff we have in place. Instead of just uh, price of gas fluctuating with Delta Pog, there was also a Delta Max Gas uh, component. And then after being completely done with this and mostly done with the econ paper based on it, they're like, hey, we can actually make the blocks time recursive where uh, the block time is factored in directly. And then we can mint the proper number of tokens. And then we could just like set up grade to seven o'clock instead of random block height. And I'm like, this is genuinely way cooler. None of what I like I had designed can carry over to be time recursive there. They're, it's no longer safe. If you have too short of a block time, now it's going to demand more for dev inflation tokens than was even minted. Like there are too many hiccups that we're going to have to redesign this to make all the formulas time recursive. And I had to go back and redesign everything. And that's what you see now. So um, that that's a lot of the hiccups, just what's possible, what do people have time to build. And then since we're focusing on this, we haven't got to the governance stuff yet where we're going to have things like um, actually have staking rewards incentivized securing the blockchain, which is somehow radical because nobody's actually done that they, they just all say that's what's being done uh so, so there's a lot more to do it's just yeah uh factoring the time and then what people have time to build 
Go on, Stephen. Oh, I just want to say I love listening to you here. I love listening to you talk about problems like that, Mike, because I've spent the last two and a half years just going through endless lists of them. Um, and like you just get faced with something. Um, an example, when we were building our vaults, um, essentially the only way the Cardano, our, our, of course, our blockchain, the way that we have to count on the blockchains are different because we're dealing with different blockchains, right? On Cardano, the, we had to deal with um, counting in blocks to be able to create block time, well, like block time. But when we're creating payouts, decentralized payouts on a stake, we can only count in units of block time. And because we have to link the amount of um, Lovelace or the amount of tokens we're paying out per block, we actually have to count at a, at, on a base unit of time Lovelace. So our base unit actually incorporates time and Lovelace in the one unit. So as I adjust my Lovelace, my time counter starts adjusting as well. And I'm starting to count on a different clock as I adjust my payout rates. So it turned out into just trying to balance like all these different decimals coming in from every time we're changing our payouts. We're also changing our, our basis of our time, like our clock. It was an absolute mess. Yeah, and every time you do something like that, there's at least one more attack vector, one more layover of risk. And then you have to set up all the different fail safes that a lot of projects just flat out don't have uh, because, they, because they're designed by developers. They're like, oh, this does this. And like, well, what if it doesn't? Under what circumstances St- staking, does it not Staking do derivatives. Yeah. And, and people haven't even asked me yet, like how staking derivatives work on AstroVault when we're an application, not an L1 ourselves, because L1s can have modules for staking derivatives and we have to do things as an application, which makes it way, way harder. And we have to do it fundamentally different than everybody else. And we are. And once interchain queries and interchain accounts uh, develop, we're going to have to migrate a lot of the stuff and we can migrate it properly without having to redeploy pools. But we've had to set all this up behind the scenes, again, without VC money because people are, yeah, silly. So uh, we, we like... We have done so much more than people recognize, and it's frustrating. But it's at the same time, every day is a puzzle. It's fun. That's part of that's the fun part of building of building something. You know, every day is a puzzle. And I was actually having a chat about it with um, one of my colleagues today, and I was like, "Man, it's so incredible how complex everything we're building is." And then he looks at me and he was like, "Well, it's not as complex as an oil rig, is it? Particularly an offshore one." I'd say one thing too to to add on to what you guys are saying is there's this misconstrued there's like misconstrued opinion in this space and I think it's it comes from a a, a place of uh, of good heart because I think people get in the space and they want to build something that they want to build but I think we lose the plot on like traditional business like people launch businesses as well because they believe they can anticipate making profit in the future sometimes some ideas are great ideas in theory. But when you actually launch them, where are you going to find, you know, your target market or where are you get, like people don't do traditional like business thinking or pr- pr- traditional like somebody I wouldn't you don't need an MBA to, to, to understand business. Like if you don't have an audience, if you don't have a community, if you don't have a consumer, there's no sense in launching a product, even if you liked it and it, it, it's something you enjoy. I think, you know, it's cool in theory. Like, again, like I've, I've I always wanted to be a professional athlete, but like. I didn't know. I, I didn't think it was viable because I didn't think I could make any money. <laughs> like, I didn't do it because I, I, I have to pay bills and I have to, you know, I have to live life and I have to be able to eat. But I think some for some reason, these big community pools give people money to think, well, you know, this guy has an interesting idea and he comes up with all these complex, you know, things on how, you know, it's going to bring back money to the chain. And if you really looked at it, the bare bones of the business, how is it going to make money when that grant runs out? And I think that's that syndicate where we were starting to think of is like, well, you know, if we do make this bribe marketplace for, you know, Harbor, is it 
actually going to make money long term? Are people actually going to use it if the Comdex platform isn't going to have the users that we think we're going to have? And we kind of thought and stepped back and said, okay, you know, we could think of other products that could actually be usable and make money without, you know, VC funding, without, you know, grants from uh, a community pool. But then again, where Eric is saying you have to get some sort of VC involved because people don't work for free. So it's this balancing scale of where you have to have some of an idea that brings value to you and brings value to the project, but as well brings value to the chain that you're working on. And that's, I think, is the most difficult part of building is the space is that if you don't launch a token or you don't have a, a, you know, a place of you know, accountability, because when you don't have a token, your revenue is based on how much platform you're, your job, your, um, your revenue is based on how much platform revenue that your platform generates, not how much the FDV of your token is, not how much the, uh, the value of the LP on osmosis is, not you know the value of the stake rewards on the blockchain, which Eric and I both agree are bullshit because you're paying these these validators. These validators are essentially your 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 token. I think validators are this in, in my sense, and people can maybe question this opinion. I think validators in the in the crypto space are important because they value security, but it's no different than like paying the people at your company or your cybersecurity a shit ton of money for securing like it doesn't happen in traditional business like the people that provide security are important but they're not the stakeholders of the of, of the company they're not running the company they're not making decisions for the company but for some reason in the crypto space we want to change the directive of business that has worked for centuries and this new point of business where you have these people that are super responsible for the future of the chain making all the decisions that don't <laughs> I mean, understand how to run a validator node, but don't understand traditional finance or don't understand economics or don't understand all these complex ideas. And I think Adam Accelerator got it kind of right. I know it's self-elected, which I don't necessarily agree with, but you should have these separate entities that do separate things. And I think those should people should be responsible for majority of the decisions. And then obviously the validator should be somewhat compensated for, for the security they provide to the chain. So I know that was a lot to unpack, but I know uh, uh, Robo's got his hand up. Cheers, Mike. I'm, I'm just going to be very honest. <laughs> we're an hour in and we're always like, you know, very courteous towards our guests, as you should be. You should know where they are in the world, what time it is, et cetera, et cetera. And it's midnight for Stephen. Uh, there's something I really like want the community to hear from you three big brains. And I think it's uh, incredibly important at this stage. In the game. Guys, the noise here, man. Honestly, Bangkok's mental. Uh, right. Airdrops. That's all I'm going to say is airdrops. Uh, you know, We've seen them, the, right, I'll give a bit of context. We've seen the model evolve within Cosmos, you know, before all you had to do was stake like 10 at them and then you got that airdrop or whatever. Then we saw like the gamification with Stargaze, you had to buy NFTs and you had to stake some to get like, a, you know, 20%, 20%, 20%. Uh, Don, Don Kryptonium, who's a, a voice, you know, in the industry, he's very big on saying that airdrops and the way that they've been contrived is an after after effect of the ICO sort of crisis and situation of uh, 2018. So basically, he's saying like, what happened in 2018? We saw the ICO shit. We saw the you know the how we test the security shit. Blah blah blah. Uh, airdrops are just a way for founders to be able to like get around the ICO shit that we saw. Uh, I, I don't. Need, I mean, I, I'm going to go to Eric first on this one. Eric, you've been around Cosmos with Archway. Obviously, you know the story, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen a lot of stuff. Airdrops, scam or no scam? Are there a way for founders just to be able to cash out quickly uh, under the radar? 
Talk to me about airdrops, Eric, will you? I don't think airdrops necessarily help founders cash out. What they are is they are a marketing budget where you get to pay in tokens instead of cash, which teams have a plethora of tokens and they don't have cash. So on one hand, yes, it is better to pay in tokens wherever you can pay in tokens if you are if you are a startup that launched a token. Um, now, if you're getting a solid ROI, like usually you're giving out a ton of tokens uh, and, and tokens are potential sell pressure. Now, you're seeing them migrate to try to set it up so that the potential sell pressure is never activated to being kinetic sell pressure or else the tokens just get absolutely destroyed. But um, I don't know if that's the best way to market. I think things like Crew 3, like Bonus Block, uh, you can probably get a much higher ROI getting the activations you need on a lower budget. Um, but at the same time, it does also diversify. People don't care about the token unless they have it. So it, it is kind of this activation where you're able to grow a community, um, but enough people to care about your project. Right, right. Okay, well, Eric, 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 sorry, you mentioned community. Come on, then. If you look at the tokenomics, and I mean, I know tokenomics vary greatly. What is, a, a, you know, a required amount or an acceptable amount? Because we've seen about, you know, the community gets like 2.2% and the community go fucking mad. Then the community is like getting 20.2% and they're still going mad. You know, where, where's the line where this distribution actually has like the impact that it's supposed to have? Yeah, 22% is way too much. I, uh, two per, I, I like somewhere between like 5 and 10%. Uh, that's pretty high. And if so, you definitely need to have things um, decently staggered. You need to diversify to a bunch of different groups. Um, I, I think we just should, launched our, our Choi to, uh, token distribution al uh, allocation paper. Uh, it's 6% reserved for airdrops. 4.5% will be in the first airdrop. We'll have the terms uh, come out decently soon about what different sections of people will qualify for it. But we'll have a low whale cap. So if you've got 100,000 atom stake, it's not going to give you any more than if you have 2,000 atom stake. Um, so, stuff like that, where you try to maximize how many people get access to tokens and lower the amount of tokens they get access to. Eric, what's the worst airdrop you've ever seen? Very quickly, before we bring Steven in. Uh, Stride. What's, what's a, what, oh, oh my God, I heard that. I, that was really quiet. Uh, Steven, you're up, dude. I don't like airdrops. I've never been a fan of airdrops. I try to avoid implementing any airdrops in tokenomics unless they're absolutely required for certain reasons. Um, <clears throat> with respect to their function, I agree with what Eric said. Um, they're certainly designed as a marketing tool. They're an, they're an outlay to, a, to the project. They're not an um, profit-seeking endeavor. It's mostly because, exactly as Eric said, if someone's not holding the token, they're not going to care about the project. Um, the way that I like to look at, particularly when I'm looking at projects, either assisting them in designing tokenomics or, or looking at projects that I'm interested in, you know, putting money towards, I always like to think of an airdrop within a context because the airdrop in isolation is just throwing out tokens, right? So essentially it's an inflationary mechanism that's only going to push down the value of your token. For me, an airdrop needs to be implemented alongside a sink. Right, so you have faucets and sinks. You got your release of tokens, and you got your in your sucking up of tokens. Um, what is the sink that is being corresponded with the airdrop that's going to allow that amount that's being sent out to at the same time be used for something that isn't just selling or isn't just holding and waiting to sell? An example of that is a you know just a really simple example is a time lock vault, right? You know we'll pay you a flat um, a flat 
15% for holding it in a, in a vault for three months. So then 15% or 20% of the airdrop, go put it inside that vault. That, that's a really simple example. And that's if it's a huge airdrop, you know, that's, I'm not giving specifics here that necessarily work. Um, but depending on the size of the airdrop, you want to ensure that you have some kind of sync mechanism that's accompanying it, that's going to be able to maintain some kind of stability to that total inflationary uh, impact of that airdrop. For me, if I don't see any kind of um, stability mechanism being implemented alongside or within a decent amount of time, you know, within a fairly short time of the airdrop, that to me is generally a red flag for an early investment in a project. Oh, I'll tell you what, I've got a, I've got Joe in the DMs. Oh, my goodness. He wants you on a show, Steve. And I'll tell you what, you've impressed, a, like in our community, in our little world, you've impressed a lot of people tonight. Uh, Mike, yeah? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go on and on on Eric's uh, point is that I agree that it's a, it's a marketing budget, and if honestly, I agree with it because if you can pay with cheap tokens and you instead of having you know money like actual dollars and paying with dollars, I like to look at everything as capex and opex. I'm I'm a finance guy. I don't I don't look at it other than that. I think you know tokens and airdrops. That's capital expenditure. You're literally spending capital to acquire users, and it's it's a marketing budget. I think. They're done in a way in the crypto space where I don't necessarily agree with them in the Cosmos ecosystem somewhat because you have to stake other tokens to get the airdrops. Um, and then the, at that point, people can just say, well, I have Juno, I have stars, and I have these to maximize my airdrop efficiency rather than actually believing in a project somewhat. I think like Paraswap was one that actually people hated the way it was done, but Paraswap did it when they discriminated against a lot of users that didn't really use the product. and like. You had to do a, a certain number of swaps and actually use the platform to get the airdrop. So it prevents, you know, a lot of people airdrop farming. I think it doesn't prevent everybody because some some people are just absolutely malicious when it comes to airdrop farming. But I think the way that the Cosmos ecosystem it is, it's like, you know, you staked all these other tokens necessarily that you, I wouldn't say necessarily don't believe in, but, um, you know, you stake to maximize airdrop efficiency. And like Eric was saying, like, the way that Stride did, did it isn't necessarily the best way to do it. I kind of like the way that Neutron did it, where you had to vote on, you know, the specific proposal that launched, you know, ICS and 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 to onboard Neutron. So people that actually were paying attention to governance and stuff like that are the ones that are going to be able to be uh, eligible for the airdrop. So I like it in the sense of the way that you actually have to participate in what Crew Three kind of does is, is um, you know, makes people do these certain tasks to be able to even be eligible. And I kind of align with that in the sense of the, yeah, there's a pay to play when it comes to airdrops. Um, I'm not necessarily against or for, I'm kind of like credibly neutral when it comes to it, just because I've seen it done in a way where it's super predatory, kind of like in the way of the reverse stocks auction with Rebus and a few of these other protocols that did it like that. It's like, well, you got this massive airdrop now provide liquidity and now these pool rewards are going to go to a hundred and everyone is paying influencers to do all this shit. I just, I think there's a lot of scummy shit that goes on in this space that just goes unnoticed and people would get mad when like I bring it out, bring it up about like, you know, territory and all these tokenomics. And I talked to the territory founder, like I was like, listen, you guys cannot inflate the supply 500%. Well, it cliffs off after X amount. No, it doesn't make sense. Like 500% is never feasible. <laughs> like it, it's not like it's, it's off revenue. If it's revenue and your revenue is that high, holy shit, man, like I'm going to buy buy your company 10 times over. No question. But for some reason, the crypto space, we've, got, we've gotten to this inflationary rewards mean that, you know, you hold your stake. It's not stock options. It's not. 
Hi, you know, hyperinflation with max razor. supply. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Get, get in yeah. now. Well, you get a huge percentage. Well, no, no, Eric, they compare it to, yeah, they compare it to like stock options. No, it's not. No, it's not ESOP. It's not. It, it has nothing to do with it. It's not even close. What you hold your governance power for what? Do your governance votes really matter? I mean, a lot of people were against a lot of props and didn't matter because the validators voted opposite. I'll say, I said what I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done talking about it before I take this space another four hours. <laughs> Bro, it's much appreciated, man. This is the reason why we invited you or handled the, I can't, can't talk right now, but yeah, you, we basically made this space uh, on the comment that Mike wrote to Eric about financial reports and breakdowns and more reports and more reports. So yeah, Mike, just keep talking, bro. We still haven't Some seen. Form we, of... still, we still haven't seen that though. We still haven't seen any of that. As soon as like what? you know, physical I mean, responsibility, Mike. Yeah. Is that what we haven't seen? Any kind of physical responsibility whatsoever? In like, I mean, Cosmos is like. You think Ethereum is a wild west? <laughs> Cosmos is down. <laughs> Cosmos is fucked. I mean, this Dow Dow shit and this like Solar Dow and what you know, these guys just like printing their own tokens out the thin air. Like nothing back in the project, and oh my goodness, we are so far away from being like a normal kind of regulated environment, right? Nobody's Where we gonna can take us safe. seriously. Nobody's gonna take us seriously until there's actual financial primitives and backbones built in this industry that can actually solve world problems other than what Bitcoin's doing right now. So I think Ethereum ecosystem gets a lot of hate, but I always say this: gas is expensive on Ethereum because people use Ethereum. That's why it's expensive. It's not expensive because you know, well, it doesn't make sense. EIP fifteen fifty. No, it's expensive because people use it. That's why people pay for it. From, from a, a tech a perspective, from a tech perspective, I'd argue that means you should improve your scalability. Yeah, but that's why L twos exist, and that's why zks exist, and it's fat protocol thesis, which I don't necessarily agree with. But then I, I, I kind of aside more with it because the ad chain thesis require well doesn't require you to have a token, but a lot of people think that you need to have a token, and I think that's what ICS is solving a lot of. And you see Noble and a lot more of these chains, and the people that argue that you need a token are kind of the ones I'm like, you know what? There's a reason why they're doing this, and I don't necessarily agree with it because they don't believe that their company can be profitable in the future. That's why they need a token, and that's where I kind of align with this. If you think your company's gonna be profitable in the future, your protocol. I like to say company because I view everything as a company. I mean, if you're an enterprise and your expectation is for profit, kind of like I think when you're investing in a token that doesn't have revenue, you're expecting revenue in the future. And I would compare that to growth investing and traditional investing versus like a VE curve position or a curve position where there's already revenue being distributed and you already know revenue is going to exist. So you're not going to see the multiples because, you know, people understand that there's distributed revenue versus, you know, you buy some meme token. I wouldn't call it meme token. Let's say you buy a DEX token like, Let's say uh, Wi-Fi, you know, Stephen, to, to compare your your company to example, a protocol. You know, you said that you aren't making much as much revenue as as you think, you know, as you think you should. So if I'm going to buy Wi-Fi token, I'm assuming that you're going to have more revenue in the future, meaning that I I expect the token price to uh, appreciate significant significantly once that revenue is present. That's no different than you know growth investing to, in today's market where. You know Tesla or all these companies. You know they're making money now, but in the like in the in the early days, I mean they weren't making any money. I mean if you look at the EBITDA of some of these companies, like they had negative billions dollars of of, of revenue per quarter. <laughs> it was nuts. So I, I think I think that's kind of where you have to look at it if you're going to buy a lot of these projects that you know don't necessarily have revenue that you expect that they have revenue in the future. Adam is in this corridor, ca- category where. ICS and all these other features that are being added to it are going to be future revenue for, you know, the Cosmos token. 
which as of right now, the only thing that's keeping it alive is its security and its market cap and the inflation rewards. But there's really no revenue other than, you know, trading. And I, I mean, I don't know how much revenue Adam generates, pretty much nothing. But ICS and all these other revenue streams are going to give it more value in the future. But uh, Eric, you had your hand up. No, just giving a thumbs up. Um, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, but again, there's lots and lots more to go on, but we can always have more spaces. Steven, it's been awesome talking, dude. Really appreciate your insights. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah, I would <laughs> love to dive more into on what, what is like future investing. Most things, if not all things, I believe would run more efficiently with a token. That being said, tokens are not right for everyone. But what we're seeing done with tokens is uh, infuriating. Same with what we're seeing done with what's super cool about the tech and NFTs. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of how they're just being used right now. The, yeah, the biggest the biggest issue that I think, just a change to NFTs for one really brief second, and also tokens themselves. I think one really big regulatory hurdle that we need to we really need to face is how are we able to actually apply contracts using assets that we have on chain. Um, and until we have a regulatory, and you could have an entire space discussing this question. I've, I've been in work, multiple workshops where we're discussing this very problem, um, for the entire bloody thing. But essentially, like if I purchase a home using an NFT, how does that NFT actually convey the responsibilities of a homeowner just by holding it in my wallet? Um, and it's very difficult to apply NFTs as financial instruments until we actually have you know clear regulatory guidance in which we can actually say the blockchain is behaving as a contract to a certain degree on a legal perspective. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you, need to get, you need to get local governments on board. You have to get, there's a lot of third parties that need to be on board because like a deed to the house and stuff like that, that that's a very, a very complex idea. I'm just talking about the United States, but like there's, there's governments, there's stuff that are in that have to be incorporated in this infrastructure. I think that's what, that's what Canto was actually trying to do in Nashville. Um, I mean, they could speak more to it uh, than I, I could, but I think that's the direction where you have to go, where you have to get governments on board. Like there is no privacy, you know, I mean, that, that stuff is, I mean, I understand privacy is very important. You know, your keys, your crypto, of course, but to operate without governments, to operate without, you know, the structure that we currently have, I, I don't necessarily think that's the right direction because then you come to a point where there's, a few people making the decisions that hold a, a lot of the, you know, stake in the network. So, um, yeah, sorry, I got sidetracked, but go ahead, Steven. No, there's nothing to apologize for, mate. One of the things that you, you just mentioned there, this is, this is act, an actual sidetrack um, that actually blows my mind. In America, you guys run all your housing through local governments. So it's the local governments that control, um, you have to go to the local governments to put in all the papers and each local government controls who owns the house no, independently. No, 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 no. I meant in the sense of like property taxes, stuff like that. Like you can get your house taken if you don't pay your, pay your house tax. That's what a tax oh. lien is. So I'm, I'm, talking about more yeah. in the, I'm talking about in the more of the part of a third party having a claim to a property tax. Like if you live in a city is a good example. So I'm assuming most people understand, you know, living in a city, you pay property taxes, you pay water, you pay electricity, you pay all these utility bills. So like the deed of the house is important. Of course, the ownership of the deed of the house, unless you're going through a bank or unless you're going through a mortgage or all these other instruments that you have to go to to buy a house. Not everybody's buying cash. There's more than one party that's involved. So um, it's a good idea in the sense of real estate and stuff like that. But the actual quality of life improvements other than like, okay, if you could change closing to, you know, a week or a couple of days to close a mortgage, great, huge quality of life because most mortgages take weeks to close versus well, now everything's on blockchain. Now I have to worry about all these crazy third parties that I have to distribute. It's just, I think it's a lot more complex in real estate because 
I think when you own a property, it's a physical asset and you're in a community versus, you know, uh, like Bitcoin, which is a currency and currency is meant to be spent. I, I, I think I, you're on the right track and you are right where it comes to, you know, ownership of real estate and stuff like that. But NFTs are not at that point where there's still third parties you have to deal with when it comes like the deed to your house. What happens when you sell your house? You don't have to give up that NFT. Who says you have to give up that NFT? Nobody. I mean, really, I mean, it's a physical, cool thing that you own. And yeah, here's a deed to my house. It's on blockchain, but it's no different than scanning it and putting it in like a Nord locker. I, it's, I, I, I don't see the physical uh, benefit of doing something like that. But maybe somebody can, can educate me because I'm not a real estate professional. No, that's, you're, you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. There, there isn't any. Um, and, and actually, the more thing that I just wanted to say was in the the real offside thing that i wanted to say is that in just in australia we have a centralized system that manages all of that from us for us called pexa so all of these um all of these ownership systems are actually are already managed in one place which makes our life super easy here uh to change ownership it does also mean that the government controls all of it <laughs> that's that's the problem i think that's a, a massive i mean not everywhere is perfect don't get me wrong. Like the United States has a high crime rate. There's a lot, there's a lot of shit wrong with the U S but I've been a lot of places and I can't say the U S is my favorite place. I mean, biased, obviously, but, um, I think every, every, every government, every country is going to have their own problems. Like it solves a lot of quality of life within it, which is in the United States, there's a massive barrier to entry for a lot of people to buy homes, you know, cause it's credit score. And then you have to worry about your, your debt to equity ratio. And there's, there's a lot of shit that goes into the home buying process and all this stuff that, necessarily doesn't exist in other countries which i i mean i could be totally wrong but i haven't been buying houses <laughs> in like portugal <laughs> or uh, australia so i, I know well, i've gone i've gone through the i've gone through the purchasing process through an italian bank and through an australian bank and i can say it was surprisingly similar but then again we, i mean we're all common law countries so the basis of our contract law is essentially you know philosophically it's the same thing i'd like to stir the pot here and change direction um I will admit when I'm wrong on something, and I think that Joe's in the room, so I, I do owe Joe an apology, where I was, uh, I was advocating for a lot of DeFi stuff and DeFi tokens, and him and I were, were kind of having a conversation about DeFi tokens and NFTs and how some, like most of the time you know like what NFTs are somewhat rug pulls and which, which, which DeFi projects. I'm like, well, a lot more DeFi projects solve a lot. Honestly, I view them as the same thing now. I think a lot more DeFi projects are rug pulls and have these these uh these complex mechanisms that aren't necessarily i'd say fair to to judge because i i even i get confused and i think eric can probably jump on this point as well where a lot of these mechanisms seem really smart and then you break them down you're like this doesn't make sense versus like an nft project you know you're just kind of gambling to hope i mean it's just simple you know trading it's like i'm buying this nft either that i like it because it looks cool or I'm buying it in the future to hopefully sell it at a higher price versus DeFi tokens, which is like this mechanism makes you get a share of revenue and then you get a boost. And it's like, you know, I, I, I just, you money, lost me hello. <laughs> money comes from somewhere and people want new Boom. because it's new. News not always good. I mean, that's what I've been saying, but I'm 2.0 tokenomics and I still can't get a, a message back from the Atom Accelerator Dow guys. We would love an email back if anyone can relate this to them because I cannot get a message back from them. Just, I think, uh, I think Mike, block Mike, works, sorry, block Mike. works is working on their uh, their tokenomics, uh, which which uh, I saw, you know, uh, whatever his name is, Effort Cap tweets about Adam 3.0. So I think that's 
they went with that route, Eric. I think that's probably what happened. Adam 3.0, is that where you increase the community tax via a prop, like later in the day? Then you can fund like what you want? I don't know, Still. man. I, I think the okay. Blockworks guy, I think if it is Blockworks, that's great because I think they're one of the few actors in the space that comes from traditional finance. So I think they're, they're. I mean, talking to them, they're generally smart people. Like what I mean. Was it, people, I, I, I mean, agree. Actually, I, I agree. Actually, actually smart, not like pretending to be smart. And I agree. All these technical you know, loopholes. I think they're actually financially intelligent. <laughs> I agree. But what was, I mean, was 95 a kind of civil attack? On the fact that 82 got voted down, uh, given if you, if you, I mean, Eric, I, I'll go to you first. If you look at the community pool, uh, sorry, the community tax increase, was it a stealth like, you know, that the 82 failed, so the stealth in 95 and got what they wanted. Is that correct or not? I don't really understand what you're asking, Dory. Oh, sorry, dude. So there's a lot of us that think that like uh, Prop 82 with Adam, right, which was the main one, yeah, Adam 2.0, Prop 95, which was the accelerator Dow combined with the prop that raised the community tax like that yeah, a lot of people it's, feel it's like 100% it's 100% for them to just force Adam 2.0 down everyone's throats it, it's literally run by the people who propose Adam 2.0 so it's a, it's a civil attack it's a civil attack is that right okay yeah uh joe i mean joe's come up guys uh i did invite joe because also i mean mike mentioned him but he's one of the most relevant voices in the eco i invite him out like 20 minutes ago Joe's going to come in here with something dynamite for you guys. Uh, Joe, hello. Hey, just wanted to say I've been listening. It's a great convo to just be in the audience and hear these guys weigh in. So uh, I, I don't have anything crazy to add. Joe, was, it was 95, a civil attack on 82. Are you talking about the, ta- the tax increase, like a knee-jerk reaction to 82 not passing? And then 95 afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what the community tax prop was, but it was like, do you regard that as a bit of a civil attack? People not getting what they wanted and forcing I mean, the, it through? The, the way that I've always felt is um, if the validators want to take their own revenue and pull a percentage, a percentage of it together to fund all these ideas, there's no one that will stop them. The problem that I have is validators with almost no skin in the game using 1,000x voting leverage with other people's tokens to force basically take money out of the stakers hands and use it for their own ideas. I think they should fund their own ideas. And if they have to raise their validating fees to do that, there's no problem there. Um, in my opinion. I wonder if, uh, Stephen can just maybe enlighten us a little bit. Uh, Stephen, what's the situation with like developer funds and grants and governance on uh, Cardano? Like, can you go, like, how does it work? We've got absolutely so many of them. Um, most recently, we had a situation with a project called Liquid, where Liquid realized that they designed their farming, their, their lending protocol, and they designed their uh, their lending emissions, um, their pooled emissions, sorry, completely incorrectly. As a result, they decided that they were going to pause all the pooled emissions to the community. But whilst they were pausing all the pooled emissions to the community, they continued giving the team their um, regular monthly payouts. Um, so essentially the entire community just went, wait, what? So you basically just stop paying us out rewards for providing liquidity and you're just taking all the rewards for yourself and dumping us. Um, and their token went from being the second ranked on Cardano to now the 20th. Wow. So you've, you've got as many problems I, as we have. Okay. Yeah, Joe. So can I, can I weigh in on liquid? Um, I, I think the liquid team very early on positioned themselves, even before Cardano had smart contracts as the expert DeFi platform. They were going to build all this cool stuff 
people waited two years for the protocol to actually launch. They started selling NFTs clearly to fundraise with no actual benefit. The person in charge of Liquid is also an advisor for Sunday Swap, which was a DEX that launched early on, maybe the first DEX. And I, I don't trust anything. I don't trust anything coming from that that team. I, Sunday Swap to me is uh, just an extraction of value out of out of Cardano. And he he, this guy that we're referring to, he he was an advisor for Sunday Swap. He was um, involved in another protocol where he sold tokens that were supposed to be vesting ahead of schedule, lied about it, got caught with on-chain data. So I, that means- He sold 200,000 Cardano's worth of Indy that he wasn't allowed to sell due to vestiture. And he lied about it. Somebody went through the transactions and found it. it, it it's, Cardano's really the wild west and, it, it, as well, I would say. And it's, it, just, it just doesn't have to be this way. It's when you have like a bunch of people that are like, you know, 20 something years old that claim to, be reinventing the financial system because it's so much better than fiat with absolutely no experience and no track record. People put their trust in it. Oh, there's a token. It must be good. Oh, it's new. Or Sorry, sorry. I interrupted there. That was rude of me. No, good, good. One, Steven. I, I just want to say another thing that I've really noticed, you know, within that, even Sunday Swap, right? Sunday Swap had their entire deal that they had with, um, uh, I believe the name of the one was Cardstarter. Uh, where they basically card started was building a DEX and then they said to Sunday, they made a deal with Sunday swap where they basically said, we're going to stop building our decks. And instead we're going to merge all of our liquidity with your decks. And in return, we get, I believe it was 20% of their token supply, something like that. I, I don't count me on the numbers. It was a large percentage. And then at the I time of merger, oh, sorry, we just turned around and said, we're not going to honor our contract and we're actually just going to give you 1% and all your liquidity can get stuffed and screw all your community. I mean, things yeah. like that. Um, it's, it's really acting as an adult within a business, right? You need to treat it like an actual business. You can't act as, like you said, like a 20 year old. It's like, oh, we made a deal, but we're going to renege on our deal. No, you're a business. You've made a contract. I, I notice yeah. I don't, I'm not going to use the word rug pull. I don't think these are rug pulls. I think they're just planned really badly with a bunch of inexperienced people who they're happen to be. stupid kids. Yeah, I mean, they, they turn into <laughs> rug pulls after that. When, when the rubber starts to meet the road, they turn into rug pulls. And it's, it's, um, it's unfortunate because I stopped dealing with Cardano after interacting with the Sunday swap team a few times. I was like, man, these guys are liars or they're really stupid. And I, they're probably both. And and they they will they will never answer questions in their own Discord. They they lie about the tokenomics. And then when I realized, like, oh wait, this is the same team as Liquid, the same guy that's involved in Indigo. I said, this is just one dude who's connected into everything who <laughs> doesn't know crap. What was the guy at uh, on Solana that did that? It was like get one guy in Solana made like twenty apps. But the, a, a Joe, literally, you hit the nail on the head, and people get mad at this. There is something to say about work experience, about life experience that you cannot, you can't teach. You know, I don't know how old a lot of people in here is, but, but you know, Steven is, you can't teach years of being at a hedge fund. You can't teach that. Like you can't be, you know, you can't teach being in 10 years of, you know, I've, I've been in the financial services industry for 10 years. Like you can't teach that. You know, there's people that are 10 years ahead of me that stuff I won't know that they have work experience and have seen and dealt with shit like that. It kind of reminds me of the Rari yeah. Cap and Faye situation where you had these young developers, Joey Saldano and the Rari Cap guy, I can't remember his name, where you had these young brainiac kids that were super, super smart and everyone's like, bet on these young guys. And then it came to a point where 
you know, there's a hack it, at, there's a Rari hack and you expected these guys to act, you know, act smart and act like they knew what was going on. And as soon as that hap- happened, the Rari tap guy said, fuck this, I'm running away. And it's like, well, were you the, like the smart guy that everybody was betting on? <laughs> like we, we thought you were really smart. You pictured you at this really smart guy and you're 17 years old, super coder, web developer, you know, brainiac kid, but you know, they lack life experience. And I think that's, one of the things in the crypto space where I think we need to realize that, you know, there's a lot of pressure on younger founders and they need to understand it's okay to have other team members. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to build a so, brain trust of people that are really smart around you. Like, I don't know why people don't do that more. Absolutely, Mike. And it's a thing that that we have, it's a topic that's been up many, many times. Like the crypto and the Web3 space is so fucking unique in the way that there's so much money in the hands of people with so little life experience, so little business experience, so little financial knowledge. Also, I just want to make a quick shout out to a very special lady down in the audience. She know who she, who she is. Anyway, man, how do we onboard more financial experts into the space? Like, the three guys we have here, right? I will say one thing is that, Stephen, let, let, I'll take this question real quick. Is the people that aren't in the space are in the are are not in the space for a reason because they have good jobs outside the the, the financial space, and that's why there's not as many financial people here. And like I'll say, and I said this before for the people that aren't in the audience, if it doesn't work out in crypto, I will be completely fine. I love what I do on a daily basis. I get to serve others. I understand you know, finance, I get to help people save for retirement. I enjoy what I do every freaking day I wake up in the morning, you know, and I'm a business owner. So I get to work what I want, you know, when I want, I'm in the space for truly one reason to help contribute to the greater good. And if it doesn't work out and syndicate doesn't work out, nobody gets hurt other than syndicate because there is no token. So there's no fiduciary responsibility to, you know, people might get mad that like, all this product sucks, then don't use the product. You know, it's not like you have the token and you're anticipating the token to go up. Syndicate takes all the risk, just like a traditional restaurant business, just like a traditional, you know, uh, uh, software business or any other business you lose based on people not consuming your product, not the stock price or token price. Go ahead. Let's get, let's get, let's get Steven in before we bring Lord Seffi in. Go on, Steven. What's your reply? Well, I was, this is, I've got two replies now. Uh, the first one, um, it's the myth of the young entrepreneur, right? The, you always hear news stories about the young entrepreneur, but it's not actually much of a real thing. The average age of a successful entrepreneur is in their late 40s to early 50s. The reason for that is because it takes you 20, 25, 30 years within the industry to build the wealth of knowledge that's required to truly differentiate yourself in some way within your chosen field and to be able to apply that knowledge in such a creative way that you're able to build a product that builds a competitive advantage over others. Um, That's not a, you know, the the myth of the young entrepreneur is something that pervades um, the common mythos and it's something that is incorrect. It just doesn't bear itself out in reality. The next one is, I absolutely understand what you're saying, mate. Absolutely. The biggest gap to getting people like ourselves working in this industry is um, that if you've got a successful career, it's like there's not a huge incentive. I've taken a massive pay cut coming to work in this industry um, and running my own project, right? Like I would make a lot more money working in private industry than what I make now. And um, I don't regret that decision because, you know, you do get to live a life where you're building something that you love that's yours. 
But at the same time, you know, if you enjoy the work that you're doing and you're doing something that activates you, the amount of stress that you have to take on to become a project owner is very high. And it's often not worth the payoff, um, you know, even if it is successful to just being able to do, you know, your job as, you know, going to corporate if you're a lawyer or if you're an accountant or if you're a um, trader, if you're an investment banker. Yeah, I respect you know, that too because it takes a it takes a lot for somebody to come in the space and 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 honestly, like the chances of succeeding is very slim, and it takes a lot to be the man in the arena. It's one of my favorite quotes: is that you know the 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 glory doesn't belong to the people that say the guy you know you failed, you did, couldn't do this. It belongs to the guy that actually took the the risk to go and do it. And that's why I have a lot of respect for people like you and other builders in the space that are actually in here to say, you know what, let's give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out, great. You know, at least I tried. And that's kind of where we're in that same mindset of where, you know, we don't want to launch a token because we don't want to have the fiduciary responsibility of, you know, taking token holders opinions and stuff. Because, again, we're just in here to make money and uh, and build a product that onboards users and gets more people familiar with the space. So uh, hats off to you, Stephen. I, I, I do appreciate, you know, people like you in the space that are building, you know, uh, products and, and taking a, a pay cut to, to do something that you love. Thanks. It means a lot to hear. You know, it's a lot of work and you don't know if it's going to pay off. And you just, it's about the love. Like, I am very passionate about DeFi. And I guess, you know, you guys were discussing this earlier. I do believe that DeFi can act as a force for good as long as it's designed correctly and implemented in a way that's a force for good. I mean, it's very much like any other tool uh, where, you know, I can use a hammer to beat someone's head in <laughs> or I can use it to build a house. Um, so my big and that's where i agree with what you guys are saying right the biggest problem we have right now is that particularly through governance structures or through um the way in which the communities discover projects often you know whether that be through influencers and the general understanding of tokenomics within the industry essentially makes it a lot more difficult for the average person who wants to build a project to be able to make or implement this hammer for good Right. Because we don't have a consensus understanding in the best ways that these things should be implemented or we don't have a consensus understanding in how these economics truly play out on a large scale because we're still smaller than, you know, Apple for all of crypto. Oh, I, I love Stephen, mate. I love Stephen. I tell you, I was I was in the DMs with Stephen like for five minutes or something. Then we were talking about the Civil War in Cambodia. Like he's such a nice guy. I'm telling you, you can you can tell these people how nice they are. Guys, absolutely, uh, absolutely, Robo. But I don't think that you love Steven as much as I love Eric. Oh, Anyways. I hear Eric's biggest fan. Oh, Eric, Jesus Christ. I mean, you were his first interview. You know, the first love. He's, I mean, he's proper love. Uh, we would say in English, fuckstruck. But I mean, I'm not going to go there. I wouldn't do that on a professional basis. Your man, Sefi's come in and he's, he's always on point. Uh, Sefi, You've got three big brains up here. Have you got any questions? We didn't want a diatribe. We want a question. No, I think a couple of things. Like Stephen's on, when he mentioned uh, much earlier, maybe, I don't know, it's been about 45 minutes ago, about the the token sync concept. It's like, yeah, if you have a way with anything from airdrops to anything else to create some sort of demand and holding pressure for the coin, um, that is, that makes sense. Like it has some, you know, performance function, um, or like, and if you're, if the function is simply to like engage people on the platform, that's one function. If, if the, the token is used to play some game within the system, that's a different thing. 
if the token is used to buy something um, that people want, whether it's an NFT or whatever in the future, um, whatever. Like these are sort of demands, you know, that that might come in the digital space where you tie the token to some sort of demand. Okay, like that's one thing. Um, the second uh, point, Robo, you're mentioning about Adam 2.0, like uh just because a proposal on the first run doesn't pass does not mean you can't put the proposal forth again and again with revisions so i think what happened with adam 2.0 is the criticism they got was well you know if you put all these things together and wrap these half dozen things into a big package um there's no oversight and you know we need to like break this up into little pieces so pretty much with the community feedback that's what they did is they kind of redesigned everything and then kind of attempted to kind of deploy things in smaller chunks. So I think what you're really all you're seeing from that is just what the community asked for on um, on the various forums and whatnot. It's not up to the people who want to do something to give up just because the community says give up. You can always revise things and then float it again. And if it doesn't pass vote, but doesn't pass vote, that's just how life is. But like, it's easy, I think, relatively speaking, to be a naysayer about everything all the time. Most people that do that all the time, just basically just have fun staying poor. Like if you innovate nothing and you accomplish nothing, that's also kind of like a pointless, like if you want to be Don Kryptonium, for example, and just like be negative all the time, guess what? You're going to stay poor. That's how life works. Like if I was a naysayer about Apple, <laughs> if that was a naysayer no, about Apple, I would not. be poor now. If I, no, he did if not. I felt like, um, oh, modern medicine uh, is never going to work and like I didn't become a doctor, I would be poor now. If I, like, you know what I mean? Like you could come up with hundreds of reasons. And by the way, like in the early computing space, like, you know, a lot of computer companies went to zero, literally. Um, and so like you will have some winners in a space over a course of 10, 20 years. And most of the companies and businesses around any new tech are going to die. Um, even if they're run reasonably well, they're going to die. Like, you know, like, like Nokia, where are they at now? Yeah, exactly. Rest my case. Basically zero. They're dead. Right. So they were they were producing good products. They were producing good revenue. But like staying power and all of that is is a d difficult thing to achieve for anybody. Um, and I think the natural like life and death processes of these things are pretty normal. Um, and you know, the tokenomics that, uh, and all these things that don't work for specific things or don't achieve the desired end endpoints will simply die. And that's fine with me. I don't have a problem with that at all. I think as many people playing around the better, and as many of us people lose money, the better, like, that's just how life works. Like if I go into Las Vegas and I win every time, right. We're all fucked basically. Right. Like that can't work. Well, some bold statements there, Sefi. Well, I mean, happens. Yeah. Well, I think Eric's the card counter. Wait a minute, Eric's the card counter. Eric's the card counter. He's a Vegas man, so Eric. I mean, are we in Vegas or not? I would not insult Vegas that way. We're in the dot com bubble. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Is that worse or better? Is that worse or better? Oh, worse. worse Vegas probably. is fantastic. Worse. Worse. Vegas is fantastic. Uh, yeah. I mean, how many of these experiments do you guys think we're going to see in ten years? Realistically, I think I think ninety nine point nine percent are going to die, and like you'll see, you'll see Google, uh, not Google, sorry, Microsoft and Apple. Like you'll see two big emerging Ex companies that, that exactly and, and Amazon, like three big big pro, like pro. I mean, and then you'll see some smaller protocols succeed. On the, I think I'm talking about chains and and uh, 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 succeeding. I think a lot, like through two or three chains, will really hold like ninety percent of the TVL in the space. Ethereum, Ethereum, Mike. 
I do okay. think Ethereum, whether people think I'm an idiot or not, I think I'm a survival ship bias kind of guy. If something's been around for a long time, I think it has a long, a better chance of succeeding. It's kind of like Bitcoin. It's not, it's not sexy, but it works. Um, yeah. And app, I mean, Apple continues to innovate. Microsoft obviously continues to innovate. Um, but when you talk about a sense of currency, like, you know, why hasn't a, a competing currency came up to the U.S. dollar? Because U.S. dollar has been around for a long time and it's been strong uh, the u.s so, dollar has also been backed by the strongest military in the world yeah history. exactly well i mean that's a different yeah. thing you want to argue but that, that is the reason that, that is the reason why we build a yeah. Lot of dollar. <laughs> yeah well Sefi, there's Sefi's point in case <laughs> that's why you build but, missiles that's why you build a strong military is to back your your a dollar is a bad example but i'm sorry but i, I you you get the point where i'm saying with something that's been around for a long time it's like pe penicillin is a good example you know, penicillin was invented. Steffi, you could probably, uh, uh, you know, speak on this more than I can, but it's been invented in a long time, and it works. I mean, it it, it actually it, it actually came from tar. You know, coal tar. Penicillin actually came from coal tar, believe it or not, in the eighteen hundreds. Quite an interesting story, penicillin, isn't it? Oh, it was a penicillin. Oh, sorry, paracetamol. Shit, I fucked up there. Paracetamol okay. that came from coal penicillin. tar, right? Penicillin. Penicillin was um, was Howard Florey, uh, an Australian scientist, that was the one that was able to get the first synthesized form. Hey, you Aussies invented some right mad shit. I didn't even realize yeah. until I moved to Australia. You invented where you invented the air. So, Robo, Robo, before you go into Sorry, in, no, before no, you go into full Australian mode, <laughs> just beyond because I know you, bro. You can just pivot everything into Australia and talk for it for hours, man. On in. We love you. My point, my point is this though, that I agree <laughs> with, with what Eric is saying, and it is the dot com bubble and you will have emerging winners. The applications, it's a way I think it's different in the in the than the dot com bubble because you have applications built on top of these internet protocols. I think it even gets slimmer with with that as well. So you'll see 99.9 percent .9 of pro like layer one blockchains fail and there will be a few that control a lot of the tvl and then some niche market ones and then on top of the applications you'll see like three four five protocols control you know most of the tvl most of the business so what those protocols are zero idea but you know i'm taking that's like everybody else so i just want to i want to add a little bit of like yeah, that's of course what's going to happen, but that's a consequence of the design of markets. Markets have always got to pull to the center. So regardless of how you design any system, as long as you're doing it based on a market economy, uh, you are going to wind up with the suction to the center where a few people or a few companies control the majority of the power. And that is just a consequence of the mathematics of how markets work. So unless we can really sort of think of a way to destructure crypto from a mentality of raw trading um, and somehow think of crypto more within a societal integration or within a, a manner in which it's being used utilistically rather than being utilitarian in a utilitarian manner, sorry, rather than just being used as a financial instrument, I think we're always going to find ourselves with that natural consequence, right? Yeah, the, the correct, I think I, I, I'll go I was going to say, like, that's why, like, a lot of what I talk about is that the game is wrong. The game is what has to be redesigned um, because without the proper game theory, you really just go to what Stephen was saying is basically just monopolies and duopolies and triopolies, which is the standard for. Uh, pretty much like all of the tech world it's a standard for almost 
like I don't know. It's an, any it's industry. an oligarchy. Yeah. An oligarchy. Yeah. And, and Eric, oh sorry, I was just about to call you just the neck. Like you're the game theory guy. How can we how can we fix it, man? How can we apply better game theory to this problem? Earlier in Mike's, um, I mean, you start at the end. You start with the goal. Earlier in the conversation, Mike had talked about um, how like he'll trust NFTs when like they actually can have enforceable contracts and instead of just like a deed NFT, but then they're still actually deed when there is actually the deed on chain. We do know what kind of problems at this point crypto can solve and will solve. It's a matter of bringing those to light, discovering new problems that it solves, but also bringing the problems it's supposed to solve and actually solve them and actually get integration and then being a part of the projects that do that. Uh, it, it The crypto framework 10 years from now looks very different than what it looks like right now. Uh, we all talk openly about 99.9% failing, but then we're all shocked when things like Terra Luna collapse. So like, we do have to know <laughs> what this Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you're going to do a stable coin, and Sefi can agree with, me, agree with me on this one, it has to be under collateralized because there has to be a way for there to be arbitrage number one seniorage and there has to be a reason to hold it other like over collateralized stable coins don't make sense when the interest rate for yes. money markets is 4.5 they don't, and they don't and all think. of the stable coins we have are under collateralized all of wait, the over not, not usk i should i should have never easy boys on that. easy easy boys everybody <laughs> easy okay the issue with an arbitrage design for a stable coin is that if you implement an arbitrage design, there's always going to be some net value that's able to break the arbitrage and the system breaks down, right? Like that, but you, your only hope to maintain that system is to have the hope that no one will ever be willing to put the amount of money that it's required to break that arbitrage, right? But there I is have, going to be a point where that arbitrage is broken. Yes, I've only I seen oh, one stable Mike, coin Mike design goes ever. I've only seen one stablecoin design ever that I've actually liked, and it's uh, DJED, like DJED. Jed, 400% over-collateralization, exactly. Yeah, and they they understand when it does get under-collateralized, and they make the math public about like, yeah, it's over-collateralized for now. These are the circumstances under which it breaks down. Meanwhile, what we have in the Cosmos ecosystem is a whole bunch of tokens that are collateralized by illiquid tokens collateralized by value not so explain right eric eric wait uh, wait a minute explain usk then for me what's your issue with usk isn't that over collateralized it's over collateralized by value not by liquidity so the the whole my whole issue with terra luna wasn't that they printed their own collateral but that their collateral was based on the valuation of luna not by the liquidity luna had access to so you know 22 billion dollars worth of um worth of value worth of market cap for luna but you have maybe $100 million of liquidity, dollar-based liquidity that Luna had access to, it means that you really were about 5% collateralized and know that once you access like one or even half a percent of that liquidity, it's going to cause a spiral to take away the other 4.5%. So, so have you man, looked at USK, Eric? Have you, have you looked at USK, have you? Yes, I've looked about... at USK. How did you look at USK? It's closed source. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. I'm not, I'm not a dev anyways. Uh, they're collateralized by... Adam and like yes, I'm happy when it's USDC and USDT. Assuming that those versions of USDC and USDT are able to retain, like hopefully, like you don't lose Axlar access and stuff. But like, isn't, isn't it collateralized is the only by actual yeah, liquid token there? The theory, right? Even that it's, it's it's collateralized by right. All right, okay, you're talking about Axlar. It's complicated. Right, okay, okay, okay. It's complicated. Go ahead, Eric. Over collateralized stablecoins cannot and are not designed to scale. And they, they shouldn't are. scale. Like they that, where does the money come from? They're, they're the least dollars. efficient 
like the um I, I told people I'll make my thesis known on on over collateralized stable coins eventually. The only applications or groups that genuinely it makes sense to launch an over collateralized stable coin are groups like Astro Vault, which we're not even doing this right now. Maybe we will sometime in the future, but because we have our own autogenic treasury where we can then li- do self liquidations when those circumstances show up, where it shows that it is genuinely under collateralized. So not only will be like, oh, it's collateralized at 400%, but also we can uh, self-liquidate up to 70%, stuff like that. It has to be centralized. And even then, why would we choose to do that? Like it is an incredible, inefficient use of liquidity. You have to have the liquidity in multiple places at once, which you can do, but then you move money around the same way that traditional markets do. So you have to understand the liquidity leverage and, and value things based on liquidity instead of market cap. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think most most CD, CDPs are euro dollars. Like they they they're you're basically relying on another instrument. Every Eric. layer of risk, every risk that you every sorry, one more thing, Stephen, before you go is one every layer of risk that you add on is more riskier. It's more risk for the stablecoin versus like a traditional USDC that is backed by U.S. Treasury bills. So why and 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 it goes goes in the sense of like why would somebody hold you know the coin that has a lot of risk? A stablecoin, a good example. When you know the free risk interest rate right now with traditional markets is four point seven percent, doesn't make sense. So I think well, I think it's a good idea in theory, like you're saying. But the problem is, is that there's got to be a like it's it all is RAR like risk. Yeah, who's this? Who's this theoretical customer? Go ahead. Yeah, it's like who's the theoretical customer who's going to hold it there without any interest? Risk-adjusted risk return. That's all it is. Is risk-adjusted returns. How much risk am I taking for holding something? What's the reward? If it's already a fixed interest rate or a, a variable interest rate that's not higher than the risk-free rate, which is the U.S. Treasury, which any money market you can get right now, you get around four six, four seven. It does not theoretically make sense to hold something that is going to give you less than that, and you're taking a lot more risk. It is to any hedge fund manager, or any risk manager, financial consultant, advisor, whatever you want to call them will look at you and like, you're an idiot. Why would you do something like that? But for some reason in the crypto space, people are like, well, it's decentralized. Well, what's the risk? The risk is that it depegs and it goes to zero and you lose money. Day day on Phantom just had this problem. It got exploited. So, I mean, I, I side right with Eric on this. I'm gonna I'm gonna put the hand up, not, but not put the hand up, obviously, because I look like a pleb if I do that. Stephen, uh, I'm well aware it's like 10 to 1. Guys, he's, uh, he's in Australia. I've lived in the same city as the guy. It's 10 to 1 a.m. in the morning. Uh, Stephen, yeah, you got any feedback for that one? It's I'm enjoying the conversation, so don't stress about the time. All um, right, then, sorry. No, that's absolutely fine. No, no, no. The only thing, the only thing I'd say is I absolutely agree with you what you're saying about um, Jed. I had that. Co- I was actually having the exact conversation that you were having, or a very similar one with the uh, designer, uh, with the head engineer of Jed at the Cardano um, conference when two years ago or so. And the way that they pegged it to liquidity is, is absolutely brilliant, right? It's it is depegging to the upside, but that's a known risk that we're going to experience, right? And at least from a community perspective as well, if your jet gets a little bit more expensive, it doesn't. They don't feel as upset as if it's getting a little uh, under. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I really like Jed's design. Jed is Jed is the only coin that I can see that's algorithmically based, but is makes sense. By the way, this uh, this question of under and over collateralization, I think the. In the real world, this has been already sorted out in the sense that this is the reason why the dollar uh, is not collateralized by anything anymore. And that was done because the trade-off was the network effect uh, and like the, the control effect 
Um, the only way for the dollar to have achieved its current sort of world reserve status was basically by not having collateral as the basis for it. So that's where the scalability proof comes in. But like that has side effects, right? Like if you look at uh, the national debt today for the United States, it's just weird and doesn't like you can't reconcile the fucking thing like, no matter what you do. So like there's a consequence and you don't know that consequence sometimes for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, um, you know, I, I, but I don't think it's so straightforward to find like like create a collateralized version of some sort of currency that people are going to want so long as something like the dollar with its yield um, exists, right? Like the, like the comp competition is fierce essentially, and it's hard to, hard to beat that. You're absolutely right. Um, and I know that so many people are focused on stable coins. I'm like completely ignoring that in the industry right now because I don't think that's where the future of adoption looks like because the most efficient, like the, mo the most efficient it can be is having 0% collateralization. It is absolutely a trade-off between security and, um, and scalability. And so the ones that you can see take off and scale really fastly are the Terra Lunas where you don't have the security where it's not actually collateralized. And that's what makes a good money money like i there were issues with the gold and silver standard and while i'm very much against how terribly we've done spending and speaking as a u.s citizen and, and what all has happened with the dollar look at the world the dollar created look at how efficient our world runs um people are like oh bitcoin's real money no it's not bitcoin is terrible money it's it might be a good store of value but it can't be a good money if it is deflationary you need money to devalue over time to incentivize um, to incentivize investment, to incentivize uh, lack of stagnant or yeah, not being stagnant. And you had to have just massive money printing. But in DeFi, if we're going to build a different system, you have to understand those risks. And I don't want to build an ecosystem knowing that I can get rugged at any time from this unneeded dependency. And so I'm not going to rely on any type of stable coin like that. Wow. Yeah, okay. the, the world is... The world is basically a petro agro dollar digital system. Like it's one big giant machine at this point. And like the, it's both incredibly um, like powerful in terms of the types of things that get produced from that. Like look at AI today, for example, like these are sort of the side effects of that system. But on the other hand, the flip side of that is like, it's an extremely fragile system. Like we're one solar flare away from like complete human decimation, meaning like, complete breakdown of food production and like energy production on this planet you're like one little glitch away from just a total oh planet, Seffy, right? don't don't Seffy, don't wreck the buzz i mean don't wreck the buzz <laughs> i mean i know we're all doomed we're uh, mate i know we're all fucking doomed and the end of the world is nigh and we're we all the we're all is, there but the simple point is like it's just their trade-offs right and this is true in in if you're building a crypto system too you can create like you can trade off scale for security etc cetera, etc cetera. But there's some fragility that you introduce in the system, um, depending on what trade-off you pick. And the problem is, is like none of us can see the future. So like I might be a AI doomer, and you might be a, like a you know a solar flare doomer, and maybe none of those things happen. And we get hit with a meteor instead. So the problem with de designing crypto systems is that like which security problem is going to kill you, or which lack of scalability is going to kill you, we don't know. Uh, a priori and that's why it makes it so difficult to sort of design these things like let's say you're a crypto designer and you're like hey you know what i want my thing to grow really quickly so i'm going to put together some cool ponzinomics or whatever and it's going to grow really really fast now you could do that but then like that might have consequences uh in terms of like the longevity of the thing it might crash quicker too well um, yeah so but yeah. so, so with, in these trade-offs though it is always better to choose scalability over security until it isn't 
And it takes an ungodly amount of time until that's the case. I mean, have you guys even heard of Jed before this? No, but you've heard of Terra. And that's because Terra chose scalability over security. What did you say? Uh, right, I need to double check myself here because we have got a security expert coming on, and it's really security expert coming on tomorrow. You said that you have to focus on scalability over security, Eric. Yeah? Is that right? I, the trade-off. I prefer I prefer focusing on security. However, realistically, it is always the right choice to focus on scalability over security until it isn't. And when it isn't, that's when you see giant capitulations. Terra, FTX. They were focusing on scaling. They did great. And all the people who made those decisions got stupid rich by making terrible decisions, which makes it the right decision for them. There is a ton of money in running Ponzi's, and it's always going to be more efficient to run a Ponzi than a solid business. And I, I hate that that's true, but I'd be amiss to not acknowledge that's the case. And that's why I'm okay. That's why I'm okay with high staking rewards early on. But you have to use the leverage, the opportunity that you get from scaling to then grow something that's secure. You have to get this kind of marketing in place, and marketing is always a, an ungodly expense that, in my opinion, isn't really justifiable, but you can build something secure and nobody's going to come and use it. So you have to kind of find some kind of mix, and I hate that, but that's this, what it I is. Think, I this, think is a problem, this is a problem that we find in, in uh, at a basis of market capitalism, right? That's not just an incentive structure that exists within crypto. That's an incentive structure that exists within any form of uh, business construction, right? You're always going to be incentivized to scale regardless of the consequences, whether that be environmental, whether that be um, community damage, whether that be breaking families apart, whatever X is, right? Your incentive is to earn income because businesses are essentially unethical. They're aethical. They're not good or bad. They are money-producing machines. Um, as, as long as that incentive is to be a money-producing machine, then yeah, that that's going to be the incentivization at all points within the business within the business cycle. We need to rethink. Like there needs to be, I guess, the yeah, you know, you need to restructure the game theory of how you're looking at your businesses or how you're designing your businesses a priori, right? Like we, I guess, we need people that are doing this from a philosophical perspective, not people that are doing this to line their own pockets. That's why I'm here. <laughs> that's why yeah, I'm here. That's, 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 I was going to say you're, you're singing Eric's fucking theme tune here, like like. Whether he agrees with everything or not, like the base points, I'm sure, like, Eric, you're like, yeah, 100%. All of this that applies to crypto applies to the biggest thing. And, and we're catching along fast, but I, I get frustrated when people act like we haven't been dealing with this exact stuff for thousands of years already. But we have barely new problems and barely new solutions. Almost everything's been done in some way, shape, or form before. And we need to understand it and we need to decide how we do want to approach things. We have opportunities to rebuild things better. But also, we have more opportunities if you build more Ponzi's and if you make more stupid dog monies. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't make a lot of friends in this place, in this space, but I'll still be here in 10 years and I don't know if they will be. So I'm going to keep trying to do something that makes sense, that I can rectify uh, ethically um, and try to build whatever is going to be the next Google, the next Apple. But realistically, money is fake. It has purpose. It is meant to change every couple hundred or thousands of years. There is no like, oh, this is the solid money that's going to last forever. That's not the purpose of money. That's not how money works. And understanding. Are you Kevin? Are you Kevin O'Leary? Are you are you Kevin O'Leary's son? Are you Kevin O'Leary's like secret, like abandoned son or something that like we've only just found out about? I think I'm not. I'm not in this to make friends. I'm in this to make fucking money, dude. I, <laughs> you're talking my language, Eric. You're talking my language, Eric. You know. I'm in. I'm in this to make a difference. I hope I provide for my family as I do it, but I. Oh, I don't care about getting rich. I'm not in it for that. I'm trying to do something different. And again, I want to leave the space in four or five years, just do some advising roles and start a church. That's my so, end game. Eric, I've been public about that from the beginning. Uh, oh, and I can tell you, I, I can tell you 
being Bruce, trolling with Siri. Bruce, one second. That's very interesting, though. A non-dev person who talks like that because we've been doing non-dev stuff. And we let Eric mention, Eric said earlier, oh, it's a smoke screen. They make it like look or sound is like it's much harder than it is. The coding community, like, like try to. But actually, it's not that fucking complicated when you start going copy and paste people's code and learning about how bulk functions work and learning how to just like change addresses and change functions and actions. And like, like, I know, Eric, I heard you earlier. Like, there's a time where these fucking devs could hide and they want a pedestal. That time has gone, dude. That time is now changing, right? I, I don't know. I, I hope so. Well, I, I like that devs now have an opportunity to lead and run things. I think it's been a miss that in business for the last 40, 50 years, like the devs do most of the work, but it's the soft skills people that make the most of the money. Um, that being said, there's a reason that soft skills people made most of the money. Uh, like it, it is the marketing, it is the deal closers that actually bring the money in. And so we need more of a mix, hopefully leaning more towards the devs than was previously done in, in prior business. But um, th this idea, like I, I was in the ecosystem for a while where they tried to have a salary cap of $30 an hour for non-tech people and a salary floor of $100 an hour for technical people. And I'm like, well, I can do audio engineering. Does that make me technical? Like, how do you define this? Like, what do you do for like lawyers or anybody with any kind of legitimate business experience? Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work for you for $30 an hour, <laughs> but you want my work done. So I'll like, justify that. I'll say this too, and um, and this is how traditional business has run for the, the the beginning of time is where, you know, businesses that are top heavy fail really quickly. Where you have the people that are working and have the technical skills running the business, versus the people that are sat the I mean, I think sales runs every business. The people that are actually selling the material, actually getting customers, actually onboarding people, are the most important people in the company. And you saw this with Circuit City. As soon as Circuit City started paying the salesman less, Circuit City went out of business. Why? I because love you guys. Not... I got to hop on my for a call. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this is the last Steven, thing. Steven, great to meet you, bro. I, I also have to leave. Love to meet you, too, man. Thank you for having yeah. me on. This is the last thing I'll say before I have to leave because I have to jump off, too. Um, that I don't think there's enough salesmen in this space. I don't think there's enough people that are actually selling these products and marketing them the, the way they're supposed to be. Um, and the Circuit City problem is, you know, I don't know if people are familiar with what happened with Circuit City is that. Circuit City was super successful. They had this program with these salesmen um, that, you know, incentivized them to sell these programs. And they sold these programs and made a bunch of money for Circuit City. And on average, as a college kid, you could be making 50 to 60 grand off selling these plants. What happened is new management got in there and said, these salesmen are making too much money. What happened? Circuit City went out of business because they weren't incentivized to sell these plans anymore. So I think in the traditional business model, you think that, oh, yeah, just because the tech people and the management is running this company that, you know, they're making all these financial decisions and they must be smart doesn't mean they're making more money because they're paying people less, if that makes sense. So I think we need to shy away from this traditional business model of, you know, the smart people that are actually making the code should be the ones that make the most money. Yes, I understand. I understand that because they have a lot of skin in the game because they are writing the actual, you know, point of the business and actually building the protocol. But again, you have to onboard users, you have to sell your product and you have to be able to make money. So you have to incentivize the people that make you the money, not the product itself. So Coming, coming from a sales background, uh, Mike, coming from it. Sorry, uh, Stephen, one second. Coming from a sales background, I have to reiterate, ex reiterate exactly what you've just said, because I remember sitting down like 19, 20 years old, first day of the job, and like the boss explaining, like, you go to see your GP, your, do your local doctor, your general practitioner, 
someone sold him the fucking stethoscope that he's going to put on your chest to find out if you've got a fucking lung disease or impending pneumonia. What Mike said there about salespeople, mind, like, don't overlook that. They are, some like, the vast majority of the time, the most essential people within a particular like, business environment. If you're, if you're in a business where you're selling products, your sales staff, the, and that's why sales teams get given the, like, greatest, like, oh, we've lost Eric. He had to go. He had to jump, right? Okay. Uh, we didn't get to say goodbye. But, like, literally, sales teams in a big company are given free reign. It's like, it's like they're a different entity to the rest of the company. If anyone's worked in sales or been part of that environment, it's like you, you, you're like the Wild West, right? You, you, you're allowed to roam free and generate your lead and do whatever you want. But salespeople are always overlooked, and they are generally the most important people in the organization. Sorry, Stephen. And bye-bye, Eric. I do apologize. I was, I was a broker. I was a broker for three years. I mean, a broker is just a really fancy name for selling angrily at people. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, sales, sales are the absolutely the most important part of any business. Um, and I, I think that tradi- a lot of traditional business does realize that. You know, if you look at sort of um, SAAS, um, if you go to an SAAS company, yeah, Dead's making 150K, but if you're a good SaaS salesman, man, you're making 500 to a mil. Right. Like it's the problem with sales and the reason the reason that makes sales such a hard thing is, is that it's just really hard to find a good salesman. You know, like good salesmen are but you, you gotta know, be a people you have one to be in a thousand. Person. You have to be a people person. And sometimes these a lot of these devs not shitting on the devs don't know how to deal with people. It's it's not just that. You have to deal with a lot of shit. <laughs> it's an expert. It's an expert who sold on three continents and like trained sales teams and like I've done. I've, I've studied the whole fucking thing. I know exactly. I teach people this shit every day. Uh, it it it's it, it. I mean, is is it about the salesman? Is it about the salesman or is it about like the product and the ethos? Which one? Which one's more important? Because I've sold shit. So is it is it the salesman or is it the fucking product? I think it's the narrative of the product, right? And the, I think that the actual, uh, the idea that we're, that you're trying to separate them, I don't think necessarily works because the, you need the product, like you can sell thin air, don't get me wrong. Absolutely, you can sell thin air. Um, but if you do have a product that you're selling behind you, you want to make sure that that product is meeting up to the narrative that the salesman is providing. And if it isn't, then you've got a faulty product that I wouldn't feel ethical about selling. Right. So you need those two sectors to work together and in tandem to build both the product and also to ensure that the product's functions are are working within the narrative that the salesmen are trying to portray of the actual functions of the business. I think they're both essential. I think it's it's the most successful salesmen in the world. And, and, and the United States are ones that sell stuff that's really valuable. And the salesman himself or herself is, is very valuable as an asset as well. So like you can, you know, a, a, a normal guy can sell a really good product and make a good amount of money, but a really good salesman selling a, a really good product can take the business to a whole next level. And I, I'll stand by that to the day I die. Cause I think there are certain skills and sales that you need to know. You need to deal with rejection. You need to know what you're selling. You need to know how to pitch it. You know, I need how to talk to people and build relationships. And I think sales is massively built around relationships and getting to know people uh, on a, on a personal level. And I have, I'm, you know, my father always taught me this as a traditional businessman, very successful businessman in the United States. People do business with you for two reasons. One, they like you and two, they trust you. 
the product can be great. You know, it can be the next thing since sliced bread. But if you're some random dude selling this product and they can't trust you, I mean, I, I don't think they're going to buy it. And people can push me back. And Robo, you might be able to push me back on this too. But uh, no, I well, I mean, I, I'm going to ask. I'm, I mean, Stevens here, and it wouldn't be Rock FM if we didn't do this. Stephen, is Charles Hoskins uh, the, the 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 greatest dev in the world, or is he the greatest salesman, or is he a <laughs> bit of both? Both. Oh. Oh my god, this is really, really dangerous for me. That's um, okay. You, you don't. No, no. That's like I said. You no, don't have to go there. To, you don't, I'm you answer, but I'm just going to be diplomatic here because my feelings about Charles Hoskinson can be made public, and then I will have an entire rabid community of twenty thousand people at my throat. Um, that doesn't mean I feel badly about him. I'm like, if I say the wrong thing, that is a realistic thing that can happen. <laughs> um, don't worry, so, we'll delete the space. We'll delete the space. We'll edit it. We'll delete. Don't worry. We'll we'll so, take care of you. Charles Hoskinson. Charles Hoskinson is a fantastic salesman. What Charles Hoskinson has done better than a lot of founders is build a cogent philosophy that's underpinning his blockchain. Um, whether he acts in the manner that best exemplifies the philosophy that the blockchain is built on isn't necessarily, uh, I think, is uh, it's incongruous, I think is the best way to put it. He doesn't necessarily, he acts sometimes in an incongruous manner to the philosophy that he's selling underpinning his blockchain. But he's, but a lot of the community, such as ourselves, believe in that underlying philosophy. So we build the blockchain following those principles, or at least we try. Yes, his strongest strength is sales. Wow. I mean, your man came down to throw down tonight, Brucey, right? Oh, and, absolutely. And absolutely. Steve. Steven, oh, I mean, he fits a, right in. He's a diamond, isn't he? Hey, Mike, uh, I know Eric's honest. dropped in. And, oh, <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, and intelligent. <laughs> but, uh, Mike, Mike, have you enjoyed uh, talking to Stephen tonight or what? Has it been decent? Yeah. Man, it's like I like using the uh, the the. If anybody's seen Wall Street, the second one is a fisherman always sees another fisherman for a far, from afar. It's one of my favorite lines because when you speak to somebody that knows what they're talking about and comes from the same industry as you do, you you think kind of in the same way. And we might disagree on some things, but I like to find common ground with a lot of people. But again, it's hard to find common ground with a lot of these people in this space because they necessarily try to sell you shit. And again, Robo. You're a salesman. I'm a salesman. I can smell it from a mile away. And I'm very good at pretending like I don't know, you know, oh, yeah, great. You know, oh, that's cool. But yeah, I'm like, man, this guy's blowing smoke up my ass. So I enjoy, uh, enjoy, you know, Rack FM. I enjoy a lot of you guys. I enjoy, you know, the people that, that are in this space and, and, and discussing, you know, ideas with them. And I, you know, I'm, I'm entitled to my own opinion. I let people know that on Twitter. But Stephen, you know, it's it's very rare to find people like you in the space that, you know, are willing to come up here and talk. I think most of the financial people have either left or uh, are still in the space and kind of tread lightly. So thank you. Thank you so much for those kind words. And guys, I am going to duck off because it is 10 past one in the morning and I'm starting to get sleepy. Yeah, man. <laughs> we Steven, are going to end been... this space now as well. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I want to say a few words to Stephen. He's been a diamond, an absolute diamond. Because, you know, something we all know each other. And he came in tonight, you know, not knowing anyone or what we were going to be like. But I keep saying this about the Rack FM interviews. When we ask you if you want to come on the show and you're like, oh, can we do a pre-screening interview or blah, blah. Literally, we're in the group chat and we're just like, oh, well, that's a failed fucking. We don't even bother with people who are like, well, can we go through what you're going to ask? And I, I said to Stephen, do, do you want to come on? He went, yeah. Like, it took him like a millisecond <laughs> to like say yes, right? Uh, 
Stephen, I hope you can come back in a, in a couple of weeks. Listen, no, dude. We do a Friday show. So I think it's around 10 p.m. Uh, Friday, your time. Uh, in a, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, dude. Well, it's a closed mic and it's only like the host, the panelist. Uh, come back on in a few weeks, Stephen, and we'll talk to you like a little bit more about like history and just general like crack about everything that goes on in the industry. It's like tonight we're like really professional. The Friday show, mm-hmm. we're like shit talk. So I'd like to get you on to be at the shit talk, dude, mm-hmm. you know. Send me, send me an invite. We'll talk about it. Send me a DM. We'll talk about it, and I'll definitely swing on by. It sounds like a lot of fun, mate. I enjoy talking to you guys as well. You know, it's a very intelligent, very intelligent group of people here, and um, I've done a lot of spaces, and let's just say a lot of them don't involve a very intelligent group of people. Lovely. God bless you, Stephen. You're lovely. Right. You're welcome back anytime, son. All right. You know, he was talking about Mike and Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, oh. guys. We'll talk soon. Yeah, yeah. Take care, Stephen. What a great space, mind. What a great right. space. I'll tell you what. Banging fucking guest, man. Giga brains. Just did you did you guys did you guys notice what happened with the space when you started talking about stable coins? Had fucking four people talking in the mouth of of each other all of a sudden, all being so civilized and educated, fucking lost the. Binkies all of a sudden. I loved it. <laughs> well, because everybody has different opinions about stable coins. It's like there's no reason to hold them. Like, I mean, if you in the United States, you could literally get four point five six percent on your money. Like, why would you hold stable coins? It makes no sense. Zero. And I, I understand, like you know, the UST thing, and it's you know, Safi was in here, which is great. And Safi is one of the more intelligent people in this space that doesn't really talk that much. Um, but uh, it, it was what. What we have a like we have a standing joke, and I think Sefi knows this. We have a standing joke that Sefi comes in, and then he makes it into a Sefi space. And he can just talk for like hours. Really? Oh man, maybe I have fucking uh, bro, bro. I once, I once did, I once did a forty-seven minute diatribe with Sefi. I'll tell you what. I, I mean, I was like, you know, our, uh, Tom Hanks when he's on the island with Winston. You know, him and Winston when he's on the island, and he's like, he, he, that's it, and then he gets rescued. Man, is that the, that, you mean the, that's the Australian version? It's Wilson. <laughs> Winston, Wilson, the, te- is the, the football, the, Tom, is Tom Hanks, that, isn't is it? That when he's Australian version. Wilson, Doug Winston. <laughs> no, 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 Will, Wilson. Is it Wilson? No, no, I'm back home. He's because I'm back home now, and he's Winston. Like, come to greet me. Like, I have the greatest dog in the world. He's so nice. He's just like a big ball of fluff, man. But he's, I'm, I'm like, I'm going up to Winston, but I'm talking about Wilson. But you know what I mean, though, yeah? Bros, tonight, 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 Mike has been better than I ever thought. Like, I, I like literally, Bruce, tonight's been a banger. Go on, finish it off, dude. An absolute banger, man. Mike, do you, do you have some, uh, have some last words, words before I finish it? No, I just appreciate uh, you guys having me on here. You know, I, I always voice my opinion about the space. I'm like, again, I really don't care about what people think. I kind of say what's on my mind. And, you know, the pre-screening process was, you know, a DM. And I was like, yep, 100%. I'll be, I, I, don't, I don't need a script, you know. Like, again, I'm not, I, if somebody tells me one thing and says another, like, I'm going to speak my opinion and I'm not going to speak, you know, what somebody wants me to say. So I appreciate you guys having me on here. And that's really you know, I look forward to uh, more spaces. Yeah, man, that was my next question. If we should do this, never like... lose Bruce. Thought he, he should never lose the honesty. I've just got home, by the way. He should never lose that honesty because Mike, listen, 
on a space you can fucking smell, you can taste barefaced honesty. You can tell when someone's being themselves and when they're not. So thank you very much from me for just coming up and being you, like, dude. Big respect. I'll say this too: you shouldn't tr- like you should never trust anybody in the space, including myself. Like you don't know who these people are in real life. Like you should always tread carefully. And if somebody, you know, and I literally voice uh, openly voice my opinion about community. Like I changed literally my 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 subsection of my professional profile to financial services from community because community has just been hijacked to to just dump on people's heads. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Spicing it up for next rack FM. Absolutely awesome, man. Thank you, Mike. Anyways, this was the Neck Syndicate Financial Breakdown and more report space with the Giga Brains and the Giga Chats of the pessimistic, realistic honesty. Everybody have a pleptastic night. This was Bruce Man hosting. There's this principle in like Dawit. Dawit. Dawitism, where it's like the more you fight something, the more like the opposite of what you want. Inevitably, it kind of starts to happen. Tripping on the bird app, listening to nerds flap, wondering why the fuck my timeline's so cursed. It's like everybody's holding heavy bags in Web3. That's why they can't fly, they just drowning in the bird bath, fishing for some dry powder. Watch how we ignite the tower, blowing up the bank accounts, forgetting how to fight the power. Y'all don't even realize how deep this shit goes. They preach an open sauce, but don't listen to the code. And now it's mutiny, community, uprise There's no more humility, futility, plus size Motherfuckers leaking from the wrench down to the bare metal Which side the line you bleeding out on when the dust settles Motherfucking west side shit, needle and noose Sticking with my armory, Yam, Beto and Bruce Repping psychedelic artistry, believing the truth Like these motherfuckers even need a reason to sue? GM fam Is it really worth all the effort? Is it really worth all the fighting? drama and the answer i think is a clear we started using Zoom, now we finna zoom out Teaching all these plebidites what this game's really all about Little baby bitches when they choose to have fits All you're left with is kibble when you lose all them bits And that kibble's just sawdust, the shit is all rust Not a great look, you're what we call all nuts And I for one did not see that coming Cracking open books, yo, that's a lot of money Meanwhile over here rewiring features More critical thinking, less knee jerk More evolution, less shit Preachers pretending to be teachers Y'all just predatory leeches I mean please, just look at the track record A bunch of VC rat fucks Sucking up the cheddar, the recipe is two steps Rinse and repeat Now we all in your butts And we bring in receipts GM fam, have a seat If you're listening to this, my, my plea to you it would be like don't have, don't, don't have to take a side on it Just say like, is it really, is it really worth this war of attrition? It might cost us a lot more than what can be gained by like fighting this to the better end. And sometimes it's better to just like move on. Where the fuck did I put that? You know, I hate it when I throw something away and then someone's like, hey, you have that thing? I'm like, no, I threw it away. Now here I am. Ugh. Digging in the fucking trash again. Trying to find this goddamn shit. <sighs> Y'all throw some weird ass shit away. I didn't even bring gloves. It's like all over my hands and shit. It's fucking gross. Ow! What the fuck put a needle in here? You guys. Yo, yo. 
Yo, yo. Yo, yo. Yo, yo, Eric. Welcome, man. Welcome. How you doing, brother? I'm good, man. So there was some communication issues, apparently. But we're here now. Everything's good. How are you, Eric? Good morning and welcome. And sorry for the delay. No problem. I'm doing all right. Currently, the, awesome. uh, the econ papers dropping on the website like any minute right now. <laughs> oh, that's I've been waiting for that, man. I I heard you on the on the Joe space with Tank talking about it. Yeah, so I, that's I, exciting. I just I wasn't patient. I just sent the PDF out to some people yesterday. <laughs> but we'll have a proper link here pretty soon. Are you happy with it? I guess you are, since you're gonna publish it. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. There's. There's always more stuff we can add, but it's 50 pages. There's nothing there. Okay, okay. But uh, yeah, Mike is up. Robo is up. Steven just came in. So let's uh, let's get this going. Is this the same link as the one I had shared? Yeah, 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 yeah. It should be. All right, sick. Don't worry, man. We just started two minutes ago, so um, we're out of time. Would you like me to do this through the Wi-Fi official? That's up to you. Oh, Stephen, you're good, man. You're good. You're okay, mate. No problem at all. Uh, guys, let me explain very, let me explain very quickly, and there might be a little bit of background noise until I reach home. Bangkok's a bit crazy at times. Uh, so there was a bit of confusion actually for the first time ever between Bruce and I, and it's because he he kind of booked uh, Mike and Eric, etc., etc. And normally, I'd because I'm off tonight. I'd have been hosting a, a Tuesday one, but I've got two lined up for tomorrow. And because Bruce had uh, organized like the, the original guests and everything and set it up, I was totally convinced that he was going to run the show tonight. And I was like, all right, okay. And then he's like, are you starting this space? And I'm like, dude, come on, I'd never take this show from you. And he's like, what? Bruce, I'd never do that to you. Not when you set it up like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we should talk about this in another place because I was asked to set this up. So I just did it um, anyway. It's a brilliant space with Eric and Mike, man. I, I don't know Stephen, dude. Uh, I don't know who you are, man. Well, we're, we're gonna, tell you what, we're, we're going to find out. So, Stephen, uh, we've literally been that busy that I, I haven't like spoken to the guys like a great length. Uh, but Bruce, Stephen was introduced to us from the uh, Reach Metaverse space last week. Uh, I believe, uh, Stephen, that you had something to do with our tokenomics. Is that right? So. Stephen, we kind of know Mike and Eric like quite well. You can probably tell that. Do you want to just give yeah. like a quick introduction to the group about you, yourself, your background? You don't have to go into great depth. Just give us a, a quick overview, mate, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Uh, so my background is originally, well, first I studied physics. After studying physics, I moved into hedge fund trading and I was tr uh, working as a bonds trader uh, where I was specializing in short-term interest rates, and from short-term interest rates, I was also doing uh, treasury notes and interest rate swaps. Uh, from there, I went to work in essentially brokerage. It was kind of like financial advisory brokerage, helping develop um, income streams for uh, using bonds and developing, developing income stream portfolios with people. I started up a fund managing some monies in DeFi in sort of 2019. Heading into early 2020, when the DeFi summer hit, we did very well. Um, but whilst using a lot of DeFi products, I started noticing a lot of problems with these DeFi products, both from a structural perspective, a design perspective, just 
uh, a lot of issues that I saw, uh, which we can talk about later, of course. And I decided to design my own decks and my own auto harvester to try and implement solutions from a tokenomics perspective to the problems as I saw them to the current implementation of DEX tokens. Um, from there, I've been working in the Cardano ecosystem now for almost three years. So started that in 2020 with Wi-Fi. And now I've been in the Cardano ecosystem for three years. I run my own tokenomics consultancy. I've worked with a plethora of projects in the Cardano ecosystem. I'm currently working with Noom. I'm working with Drip. I'm working, I've worked with Kopi. Um, I'm working with a lot of NFT projects as an advisor, and I'm an advisor to Reach as well, and I designed their tokenomics with them. Bro, and that is exactly why you're on this fucking space tonight. <laughs> I mean, Eric, Mike, you know why your man's here, right? Eric's a tokenomics there, dude, as well, right? Right, Eric? Yeah, my, you're all about the number. My man, right up my alley. I, yeah, literally just invented Astro Vault for the same reasons I'm launching my... Uh, economics paper for archway like right about now <laughs> like it's about to go push live on the website um i i congratulations also do tokenomics consulting i actually have a one really big name group that people don't know is coming to crypto yet but i can't talk about it for another two months that's going to be some some fun but would be great to hear about more projects in the cardano ecosystem i'll tell you what i'm, I'm just gonna say that we've got our a couple of ladies in the room so shout out wendy below she's a, a cosmos a nerd as well but We've got our co-host here, uh, Bay Bands. Hello, do you want to say hello to the guys? Hello to the guys. <laughs> <laughs> I get wrong for this. I get wrong for this all the time. I keep saying to Bruce, Bruce, say good night to the to the guests. And Bruce like, great. And thank you, Robo. Hey, uh, Bruce, uh, Bay Bands. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, excited. Are you excited? I am. Um, I actually, I feel really bad. I have to hop out for a little bit. I have an appointment with the kids, so I just wanted to come in. Say hi, but I have to come and listen to the to the to the show later. All right, family so second. Oh, family second, work first always. You know, so, I tried. So I tried that, but my family tried to leave me. <laughs> oh shit! Change of plans. What she's, gonna, what she's gonna do is just lower the IQ on the uh, host panel by uh, dramatically uh, by a large amount. I think, like B bands. Well, I, I thought I was. We're already. I thought I was safe. You said hi, IQ only, and I was like, oh, okay, then it's fine. I can go to this appointment, no problem. You guys are all set. <laughs> well, it's the first time that we've probably been like completely out of our depth, but actually Rack FM's job some, well, most of the time is to facilitate uh, conversations. And I do know that there's been, I mean, really, Bruce has probably got a few words to kick off, uh, but I was really hoping that maybe uh, Mike specifically uh, might be able to fill Stephen in on uh, some of the crack that we've had regarding what's happened in regards to certain tokenomics with their uh, proof. Well, I mean, we could call a proof of stake. We prefer proof of selfishness. Uh, over the last week, we've had some real issues with founders and millions and millions of dollars. So Stephen, guys, I haven't brought them up on the speed as to what brought on this particular, you know, discussion tonight. Uh, Bruce, before we before I ask Mike just to fill Stephen in on on what happened last week, without any names or anything, just a hypothetical founder situation. Two spaces. 